Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is dedicated to clarification of a podcast between Joe Rogan and Max Lugavere, two popular influencers that have a large audience. They discussed Alzheimer's disease and brain health in general, and some of the information that was shared was not accurate, which can be really, really harmful. Now, we don't mean any disrespect to Joe or Max. This is by no means an attack or anything of that sort. That's not our style. We just feel that Max may not be familiar with the data and it would be important to set the record straight and share the evidence with people and let them decide what's best for them. Having seen thousands of patients with dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal lobe dementia, Lewy body dementia, or others, we feel it's our responsibility to share evidence-based information as opposed to feel-good, self-confirming anecdotes. We hope you enjoy this episode and share it widely. Thank you. So today we decided to do a response video to Max Lugavere and Joe Rogan's podcast, which discussed um, Alzheimer's disease and its preventive measures. We wanted to record a podcast response because there were some inaccurate information that was discussed and we wanted to make sure that everybody gets the right information. For us, these kind of interactions are about exchange of information. It's about expanding knowledge. It's never about attack. It's never about demeaning somebody else or opposing them and their personality or their past in any way. In fact, uh, we've worked with Max in the past in yeah. a couple of meetings and on a TV show on Dr. Oz a couple yeah, of times. I've seen him. He's a many. very nice guy and we knew his mother. So um, there's nothing personal and definitely nothing personal when it comes to Joe Rogan. He's doing a lot of work in the world of health and otherwise as well. And he's trying to promulgate and spread information. Uh, where I see value in social media and in these forums is a massive forum of exchange of information. And out of that comes distilled a distilled form of better information, never the ultimate truth, but more improvement in knowledge because we have more access. I mean, one of the things that I always talk about is the fact that I'm not against TikTok and YouTube and all these venues. I think they're incredible. Whereas in the past, a person would make a, a statement, you know, a, um, a Plato or a Descartes or somebody else and would be maybe published and and then it would take 50, 100, 200 years for enough people to read it and to understand it and then to spread the information so then they can come up with other ideas. Now that's being done in real time. Yes, there's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of misinformation, but actually that's part of this. Truth and reason always finds uh, light. There's an incredible video that we've talked about and we talk uh, about uh, by Steven Pinker, the Harvard professor, who talks about the incredible power of reason to come to the surface uh, over time. But that time has collapsed because of social media and this exchange. Now, as we talk about this conversation between uh, Lugavere and Joe Rogan, we are going to make our points and where we think that their information could be improved upon. And we welcome others to challenge us and improve our thoughts. It's that building of information upon information that's I think is revolutionary for our time. I don't think many people talk about the incredible positive potential of social media, despite the negative background. True, agree. Uh, so please come back to us, talk to us, discuss, improve our thoughts with data, no ad hominem, 
no attacks. Uh, well, it doesn't matter if you attack, but I hope that it will be a constructive one. And this is what we're doing here today. I think it's also very important for us to disclose the fact that we both are vegans, because I think it's a very important aspect of this conversation. And we are going to hold ourselves accountable and be very aware of our own biases and try to stick to science and to what research and the current scientific guidelines have dictated as far as brain health is concerned. It's kind of ironic to highlight that one intrinsic bias, personal bias, because we all have biases. If we were born within a culture, within a religion, within a, a social structure, within any kind of form structure, then we have intrinsic biases. We just want to make sure that we bring that one to the surface because much of this conversation is about nutrition. People say that you have a bias because you're vegans. I mean, there should be some self-reflection. The fact that you've been eating meat all your life, which we were for a long time, Absolutely. that is in itself a bias. But in our case, because we changed an intrinsic bias, makes us more open to change with data. Um, now, we're not saying what's right or wrong. That's our choice. And our choice of being vegan is because of environment, because of animals, because of uh, the future we see for humanity sees one where humanity is different. It chooses to go in a particular direction without much harm. And that makes us different from other animals because of our ability to do just that. But I want people to know that when it comes to our science, we hold ourselves very much accountable to the science. In fact, uh, we've gotten in trouble with a lot of the plant-based community because we say the data on fish is that fish, especially smaller fish, seem to be beneficial. Now, we don't eat fish because of the oceans, the animals and all that, and we find alternative sources of benefit where the fish shows benefit. But we talk about the fact that the data is there for fish to be eaten. Absolutely. We've also gotten in trouble with olive oil. So I don't know why we got in trouble with olive oil. It's, it's okay. It's, <laughs> it's okay. It's really clear. We stand for the data. And we're also open to change. Yeah. That's why a lot of time we talk about to the best of our knowledge today. And to the best of our knowledge doesn't mean our knowledge. Although we're scientists, we're, and we're, I'm not appealing to authority now. That's a, a form of fallacy. But all my life and your life has been about science, research, epidemiology. I have a master's in research and two master's. And my work is in uh, science and uh, interpreting science, but doesn't matter. It only matters with regards to how we defend the point, how we expose the point, how we make the point uh, with data and with logic. That's it. Uh, the degrees don't matter. And so at some point, Max Lugavir actually says that I have no background in science and I'm a journalist and we're okay with that. Absolutely. If not. he's using the tools of science and reason, that's good enough. Of course, experience matters, but experience only matters when you're making your point. If you have all the experience in the world, sometimes there's a bias in that. There's an incredible bias in the medical field where a particular form of treatment is the only form. So true. And it's incredible how that can move huge populations for a long time. For example, prevention has not been a focus in medicine or in healthcare for a long time. And we've been blind to that. And for that reason, we say it's okay what your background is as long as you're using the tools of reason and data and interpreting the data with the right weight. So we want to start with those uh, facts up front, the biases, the methodology, the fact that we are not opposing the person 
but we want to elucidate and shed some more light and maybe give our perspective on the data that was shared in that conversation. Beautifully stated, Dean. And with that, we must begin. In 2011, my, my mother started to display the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia called Lewy body dementia, which is yeah. a rare form of dementia. One Alvin Williams had that. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with Lewy body disease quite a bit. In fact, I was at NIH. We saw a progressive supranuclear policy, which is a much more aggressive form, and then Lewy body disease. And my work at, at UCSD was in Lewy body disease. It's a very difficult disease. It has components of Alzheimer's and also Parkinson's. In fact, those two have to happen within two years to give you that diagnosis. And a lot of times, uh, you know, usually the presentation is movement disorders. It starts with tremors or slowing of motion, walking, not being able to react to things very quickly. And then it kind of morphs into more of a behavioral issue as well. Absolutely. And they also, about 30% of them have hallucinations, but a larger percentage actually start with these visual spatial abnormalities. They start having falls, having difficulty figuring out the space around them. That's not usually diagnosed early, only by specialists, but it's a very difficult disease that can last anywhere from a few years to as much as 20 years. And the progression is uh, hard to watch. Uh, Max's mom had this and we saw her. Uh, yeah, at the I had Dr. the pleasure Ostro. of meeting her and she's just a lovely lady, but yes. She was, yeah. yeah. So there's a very interesting discussion about ApoE4 gene. Let's listen to it. So when it comes to our risk for developing Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, there are basically two categories of risk. You have your non-modifiable risk factors, of which there are three. So you've got your age, your genes, and your gender. So your age, age is still the number one risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease, right? You can't change your age yet. You, um, you have your gender. If you're a woman, your risk is double that as compared to a male's. And you have your genes. Now, genes is something that we can actually talk about because you can't change your genes, making them, therefore, a non-modifiable risk factor. You can change the expression of your genes, how your genes express themselves moment to moment. So, for example, if you live in the United States and you carry a copy or two of what's called the ApoE4 allele, so it's basically a polymorphism, meaning it's not a mutation. It's actually a very common gene variant. About one in four people carry the ApoE4 allele. In the United States, that increases your risk anywhere between two and four, 14 fold, depending on whether you carry one or two copies. I think that's also the same genetic expression that makes you have CTE. CTE, yeah. It makes your brain more vulnerable in general to insult, whether that is from TBI, exposure to unhealthy ways of eating. Do we know why it does that? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. So the ApoE4 allele is thought to be the ancestral version. So it's the first version. All, all non-human primates are ApoE4-4. So they carry the ApoE4 allele, not just one copy, but two copies. And yet they don't develop Alzheimer's disease. When you look to people, we've evolved these different isoforms of the ApoE gene. So we have ApoE2, 3, and 4. And just to reiterate, ApoE4 is the ancestral allele. So cultures that have longer exposure to modern agriculture, actually there's lower frequency of the ApoE4 allele. The thinking is that that agriculture, right? Like when we became domesticated, when we started basing our diets around grains, when we became more sedentary, less uh, generalized in terms of our the daily cognitive tasks that our ancestors would have undertaken, that it selected against the ApoE4 allele. 
So it's possible that that allele, which again is very common, one in four people carry it, carry it, is sort of the canary in the coal mine for the for the Western way of life. So that if you adopt a Western way of life and you eat, you know, today sixty percent of calories that adults consume come from ultra processed junk foods, right? We're more sedentary than ever before in human history. We've got more stress. We're exposed to more environmental pollutants. That that is what dramatically is what pulls the trigger, right? Because genes load the gun. It's our diets and our lifestyles that pull the trigger. A less industrialized part of the world, like say Ibadan, Nigeria, where the frequency of the ApoE4 allele is just as common, it has little to no association with Alzheimer's disease. So this is very interesting. I mean, um, he's right. There are multiple factors, both modifiable and non-modifiable. Age is a um, non-modifiable one, and we now know that it's the cumulative effect of life that's a contributor. The women are at a higher risk. One in six women in their lifetime develop Alzheimer's and one in 11 men. Those numbers vary depending on which series you look at. And genes is another factor, and he, there are multiple genes that now have been identified with different penetrants, mm -hmm. meaning that different contribution to risk. There are ones that are much higher risk. Yeah. And there are ones less. The, the most common one is ApoE4. He's right. And then we go into the fact that it has to do with our industrialization. And it was a reverse relationship that he actually brought up. He said that because we became industrialized, that uh, or agriculture came up to these communities, to these societies, these populations became less ApoE4 genetically driven. That uh, isotype that actually became less frequent. So other isoforms became more available? Yes. The healthier ones became more available and the less healthy one became less. So, and that's a huge leap from that to make that relationship between our industrialization, our agriculture, our societies changing to ApoE4 because we don't know what the ApoE status was before that. Mm -hmm. And then to make that leap is a huge one. I mean, you and I would actually agree that that would make sense or not so much make sense, but we would want that to be true because that would make our arguments more stronger because lifestyle and environment and all of that. But there's actually no data to that extrapolation. That's just a far-fetched extrapolation that we can't make because if we start making those kind of extrapolations, then we are going from anthropology to genetics to disease outcomes in huge leaps, and we can't make those huge leaps. So I, we started this whole genetic thing with a little bit of a problem already. I don't know if we should talk about it right now, but there is a little bit of almost inattention to what ApoE4 is all about and what it does in the human body and in the brain specifically. But we'll continue watching some of the other clips and maybe you and I can have a discussion of what ApoE4 actually does in the body. But we get a sense of what's going on here and maybe he's not aware of it. We are selectively extrapolating. We're selectively overstating certain facts and understating certain facts. To leap from anthropology to ApoE4 to disease already is a little problematic. So I actually yeah. not talk about some of, some of the other genes that also have a major role in the development of whether it's specifically Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia or Lewy body dementia. Yes, I know that the umbrella term is dementia, but all of these diseases, you know, whether they're tauopathies or synuclinopathies, yes. uh, whether they're mostly driven because of amyloid deposition, they're different. They're different. So we can't really kind of just lump everything into one category. Right. And even saying that they're driven by these things, it doesn't mean that we believe that they're solely driven by those things like amyloid and others. 
but they're contributors. Okay, here's the next segment. So just to put that another way, what that suggests is if you're genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in the United States, you might simply move to Ibadan, Nigeria, or another less industrialized part of the world and see that risk abolished. Okay, so Ibadan, Nigeria, and the African-American population in the United States, I think he's referring to the Ibadan, Indianapolis study where people who had APOE4 in Nigeria had lower risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia or dementia in general compared to those who were in the United States. I have to be upfront. We've actually spoken about this as well in the past, and we've used this as a reference, but it's much more nuanced than the way he's making it. We now know that that data is actually problematic in many ways. First of all, the cognitive testing that's uh, used to describe dementia or no dementia in, in those countries uh, has been questioned and not just questioned, but it's questionable if, if the data is accurate, especially when it came from that original population. Second of all, the population that moved here that had higher risk, there are so many other confounders. There are so many other variables that could be contributing. Now, industrialized nations, yes, but it could be stress, it could be trauma, it could be psychological issues, it, uh, besides stress, it could be the food, it could be the amount of movement or lack thereof coming here. That data is full of confounds. As we're going to hear, there's going to be a lot of extrapolation from that flawed database to outcomes and relationships uh, that they're going to extrapolate from that from that data. Absolutely. That said, within that cohort and the study, uh, scientists were able to highlight some clear differences between their nutrition, their cardiovascular disease factors, their comorbidities, mortality detection. But you're absolutely right. And one of the things that has come about is that lack of validated culture-sensitive cognitive tools that are not influenced by things like language, education, or socioeconomic uh, factors. And you'll see that the reason we're picking on this point is not just to pick on a point, but because it actually will speak to the APOE4 question and to the nutrition question that, that's going to come up later on. Absolutely. Here's the next topic. With this consumption of uh, processed foods that is responsible for a large percentage of the calories that people consume today. Is the human body adapting to that? Is that why this APOE4 is less prevalent than it is in other cultures? You know, it's possible, although with, with age being the primary risk factor, it's unlikely that that has put significant selection pressure. I'm not sure, but we do know there are, I think, gene studies where they've looked at expression of uh, genes that produce enzymes that break down amylase, right? Like starch and things like that. And those are increasing, I think, over time. A little out of my wheelhouse, but um, but generally, I mean, yeah, the standard American diet is completely aberrant from the diet, you know, that our ancestors consumed. The diet that that really we attribute to the development of the human brain. Here, we're going to see a little bit of mismatch. I think Joe Rogan is asking a, a different question and Max is answering a different one. Uh, but it's an important question, which is, why is APOE4 less prevalent in humans as opposed to other primates? Or um, I, I don't think it's uh, that much different between cultures. Yes, there are some differences between different cultures, but the prevalence is not as great as between humans and other species. And the answer that uh, Max gives is one that speaks to 
societal change in the last 50, 100 years. Genes don't change that rapidly. They don't turn over an, uh, an entire genetic system doesn't turn over and millions and, and for that matter, billions of people in 50 years or 100 years unless there's massive losses that are related to that gene. It's more complex than that. But so they're, they're talking about separate things. But for our answer to that is that APOE4 is uniquely human. As far as we know, it's much more prevalent in other species and less prevalent in humans. But more important question is, has the environmental factors affected that? And no, that's that those two are not related. This has been going on for uh, more than 100, 200, uh, several hundred years because it takes much longer time periods to change entire genetics of humans. So that's the answer to that uh, little miscue. Let's continue. Going back to Alzheimer's disease and, and this, this gene expression. So the ApoE4 allele is, you know, you have it, but it's not necessarily destiny. And 90% of Alzheimer's cases, I'm sorry, more, like 99% of Alzheimer's cases are attributable to some interplay between our genes and our environment. There's a very small proportion of patients with Alzheimer's disease that have a gene mutation that is a deterministic gene. Um, and this is called the early onset familial Alzheimer's gene. And that gene basically guarantees that you're going to have Alzheimer's disease. But that makes up only 1% to 2% of cases. The vast majority of people who develop Alzheimer's disease, it's the interplay between their genes and their, and their environment. So here, Max is speaking about the genes that have high penetrance, meaning that they're fully determining the outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's not just one gene. He's speaking about that gene. It's actually three genes. Specific. Yeah, it's presenelin-1, presenelin-2, and APP. And amyloid precursor protein. Exactly. And, and you see amyloid precursor protein in uh, Down syndrome uh, kids because it's on chromosome 21. And in Down syndrome, they, they have three chromosome 21, so it's more uh, APP. And that's why most people with Down syndrome develop Alzheimer's-like dementia very early on in their 30s and 40s. Exactly. And the other ones, the presenel one and presenel one 2 actually have to do with where the APP is cut, which is a transmembrane protein. So nonetheless, it's actually between 3 to 5% of the population that have this high penetrance. And we saw that even in Down syndrome and in those patients, yes, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. You are going to get it earlier, but even that's going to affected by environment. Correct. When we looked at like Down that. syndrome patients in our own studies, we actually saw that those uh, subjects that had better lifestyle, be it lower diabetes risk, because the patients with Down syndrome or individuals with Down syndrome have uh, higher diabetes prevalence, um, uh, cardiovascular disease. But if those conditions were treated better, they actually developed the disease a little bit later. Yep. So even those are affected. And then the others have different levels of penetrance. He's right that it's environment and a genetic influence in the rest. Moving on. What correlates very closely with reduced glucose metabolism in the brain is your degree of insulin uh, resistance in the body or sensitivity. So if you are insulin sensitive, you've talked many times on the podcast in the past about metabolic health, insulin sensitivity versus resistance. The sort of classic condition that we see here in the U.S. characterized by insulin resistance is type 2 diabetes. But what the studies have shown is that insulin resistance correlates very closely with reduced glucose metabolism in the brain. So what you really want to do to keep your brain healthy is to make sure that you're as insulin sensitive as possible. 
that's one thing that you can do that, you know, you're checking off that box. So we talked about the, and let me know if I should like double click on any one of these, because, you know, I know we're covering a lot, but when it comes to the, the other, uh, risk factors, the, what are called the modifiable risk factors, you have 12 of them. And one of them is diabetes. So insulin resistance, obviously the hallmark of type two diabetes. We know that insulin resistance is strongly correlated to reduced glucose um, utilization in the brain. Obesity is another modifiable risk factor. So here they're talking about insulin and, and insulin resistance. Right. Diabetes, insulin resistance, and glucose metabolism derangements. Yes. Although hypometabolism is seen early, it's not just from insulin resistance. He, he actually sp- speaks about this in a correct way that uh, you have indirect markers, peripheral markers, such as insulin resistance and diabetes or uncontrolled diabetes that have been correlated. You and I did a, were a paper, a research paper on insulin resistance in Haynes database. And right. even in younger people, right. uh, insulin resistance was associated with cognitive decline. Right. It was people who had insulin <clears throat> resistance, regardless of their diagnosis of having diabetes or not, they didn't score as high as people who didn't have insulin resistance. So we agree with him here that whatever the cause of insulin resistance, that's something that should be addressed globally, nationally, because it's a preventable state. And insulin resistance appears to contribute significantly to a lot of conditions, including heart disease, but including cognitive decline and subsequent dementias. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say that APOE4 actually has a role in the development of insulin resistance and glucose hypometabolism. As a matter of fact, people who have copies of ApoE4, they, they tend to have the beginnings of glucose hypometabolism in their brains compared to those who are ApoE negative, ApoE4 negative. That's a huge claim. It is. So let's talk about that. And I think, you know, okay. you and I um, did uh, a podcast on this whole fabrication. Matthew Schrag is a friend and he was in Loma Linda. You actually, you were one of his mentors. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very important for us to make sure that we're accurate because this could completely take us into another rabbit hole. Correct. I want to hear what your thoughts are, but my understanding is, yes, there was some fabrication, but as far as correlation of amyloid beta protein deposition in the brain and cognitive outcome is concerned, I think we have enough data that there is a correlation between amyloid burden and cognitive impairment. There is. And, there, and, and by the way, this wasn't the first study that actually showed a relationship between amyloid and, and Alzheimer's. And uh, there's a data that shows that amyloid is correlated strongly, not perfectly, but strongly with the onset of uh, Alzheimer's later on. In fact, one of the more reliable things we do is uh, look at both amyloid and tau. Tau seems to be a little more effective in predicting, but nonetheless, amyloid is a test we do is take the CSF, cerebral spinal fluid of a person at risk or who has dementia or Alzheimer's. And look at the ratio of amyloid and tau, and with a great deal of certainty, uh, not 100%, nothing is 100%, uh, say that this person has Alzheimer's or otherwise. Agreed. And so there is this fairly strong relationship between amyloid and Alzheimer's. Now, we have said it repeatedly that amyloid does not necessarily mean Alzheimer's, or we have to focus solely on, on, on amyloid. We actually said that for a great majority, and we have to figure that number out, that amyloid is a downstream product, downstream outcome that starts early on, but becomes more and more and more relevant. But amyloid's still a big player. And the last couple of drugs that have shown some effect, 
give us evidence. In fact, we'll speak about that fairly soon. There is evidence of that relationship. One of the things that I dislike about the conversation that goes on in science or pseudoscience world is, and I'm not saying this is pseudoscience, but in, in any conversation around science is that we have this binary approach, all or none. We've always said prevention is a means. We've also, I also agree with him that when people say that they can reverse Alzheimer's once all those cells are dead, we can reverse the disease, which some of the other people out there are making a claim. That's irresponsible and it's not true, but it's not binary. Amyloid is still a player. Amyloid in certain populations is a greater player in the presenilin one, presenilin two, and APP populations, and even in APOE4. Absolutely. And in other population, amyloids is less of a player, but you always see amyloid. You also see amyloid in aging. Absolutely. Uh, but that doesn't mean that those people are not at risk. So we really have to look at this in a much more nuanced way as in this binary way. Now let's throw away amyloid altogether. And one of the reasons why we think that previous clinical trials haven't worked is not because they've been focusing on the wrong protein or the wrong pathology. There were so many different factors that led to failure and we're learning more and more. We're not there yet. We're still learning. One of the factors was administration of medication at the wrong phase when it was almost too late mm-hmm. or um, administration of the drug in the wrong population. So there are multiple factors. Or the dose. Correct. Just because we see amyloid protein in the brains of healthy individuals who do not manifest cognitive decline does not mean that amyloid protein is not associated with cognitive decline or, or cognitive impairment, I should say. We have studies from like the NUN study. Correct. Uh, people who have cognitive resilience and cognitive reserve, and they have some other mechanisms where the brain continues to be resilient. Despite having the pathology, they never really show the disease. So there's so many other factors that come into play as well. Correct. But at the same time, we don't want to throw away the amyloid component, the tau component. All these are data that came to us, not just from this one study. We also spoke about, and we disheartened. We actually challenged the, the sole amyloid hypothesis Many, many years ago, even when we were at UCSD in 2006 to 2008, we already got a sense that this cannot be the whole story. But at the same time, we can't throw the the whole concept out. Okay, here's the next segment. One of the big vocal sort of skeptics about this drug, aducanumab, is a guy, a Vanderbilt researcher named Matthew Schreck. So Matthew Schreck was like very vocal, vocally against the approval of this drug, which again, doesn't do anything, right? Like horrible risk of side effects, no clinically meaningful effect on symptoms that would want to improve, right, for a patient with Alzheimer's disease. So he was vocally critical of that. And then he also was working on some other, some other drug. And he, what was revealed basically in the science paper that came out was that he was um, dabbling in a, on a website called PubPure, which is um, a site where you can go. It's known for post-publication peer review. So before paper gets accepted for publication, it undergoes this peer review process, right? he found that there were a lot of sort of red flags that were being brought up on this message board, essentially, uh, this nature paper, this like seminal nature paper that was published that found it, it was like the missing link, right? Between like the amyloid hypothesis and like the clinically meaningful, meaningful symptoms, meaning memory loss. And he did a bit of like image sleuthing, which is not generally part of the peer review process, right? And he looked at these, um, the way data is illustrated in this, in this paper, as it is in, in, in research, generally, it's called a Western block, which is like a visual representation of data, the presence of proteins and so forth. And he found that they were all, for the most part, fabricated. In fact, this A beta star 56, 
wasn't found by any other team, hasn't been found by any other team, basically came to light that it was essentially fake. The whole thing was fake. What was the motivation for this person to fake all this? I think that we like to believe that science is this good faith endeavor towards human flourishing, right? But in the industry of science, there are flawed humans, just like there are in every other industry, right? Yeah. And scientists in general, I see this all the time in nutrition online on social media, right? Social media is a great, like, sort of, they say that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Like, social media is a great way to kind of see how this plays out. Right. Because scientists are notoriously territorial, obstinate. They, their reputations, egotistical. Yeah, their reputations are everything, right? Yeah. It's just like, I see it every day. I see humans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's bad apples, right? Like, yeah. I think a lot of people in science, like I'm, I'm, I live and breathe nutrition. I'm, it's the thing that I'm most passionate about, like in life, right? Like fitness, nutrition, sleep, disease prevention. My mom is what galvanized that, that passion for me, right? And what, what my, mom, my mom went through and my desire to prevent it from happening to others that I care about and ultimately people, you know, from all walks of life. But a lot of people go into science, go into medicine because it's just a, it's a career path, right? Right? It's a career path for somebody wanting validation. It comes with prestige, comes with money, comes with all the things that that like make sense that a person would want, right? But then ego gets in the way, and it and it becomes really problematic. I mean, you see it in nutrition all the time. You see it in nutrition, like all the freaking time. So this person that fabricated the study and fabricated all this data, what consequences are there for that person? I mean, I think that the the Department of Justice is it's going to be looking into it, but, but, um, it's going to be looking into it. I mean, this is, if they're not already. Yeah. Yeah. If they're not already, but I personally, so one of the worst things about this, right. Is it's not just like the lost time and all the money that went to continue looking down this sort of path of the amyloid hypothesis, right. Looking in the wrong place really, because amyloid is there, but it's sort of like what you see in cholesterol, in like atherosclerosis, right. Like cholesterol. It's like everybody like has pointed at cholesterol as being the bad guy because cholesterol is clearly there in atherosclerotic plaques, right? But what's causing it to be there? That's the question that these researchers should have been asking all along. And some have, right? Like there, there have been other, like my mentor, as I mentioned, you know, at Cornell, who I've been lucky to, lucky enough to work with over the years on certain projects, you know, knew that, that, that there was another way. It's since glucose hypometabolism, right? It's like, but there's no money in that. There's no money in saying like, Make your, keep yourself as insulin sensitive as possible, you know, reduce your exposure to environmental pollutants. Don't hit your head too hard. You know, all these different modifiable risk factors. It's not as druggable the way that this like amyloid beta plaque protein is druggable. I think the worst thing about it is that anybody who would advance an alternate viewpoint over the past couple of decades would be ridiculed and silenced by the quote amyloid mafia. And I was the, I, I, this happened to me when I first started doing my documentary, Little Empty Boxes, which when I first started doing it, uh, it had a different name. I called it, it was called Breadhead. And I can talk about why I named it that, but that was always a sort of a working title uh, for the project. But somebody at one of these foundations, right? Like there's all these like big, like Alzheimer's foundations. Uh, I'm lucky to be working on this project with one who really believes in me and the project, the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. But there are these other nonprofits that really what they are, is just like a front for perpetuating the status quo and keeping the sort of the funding pipeline open for drug discovery. And so when I first got started doing, working on this, on my film, I did a Kickstarter campaign for it. And one of these nonprofit, quote unquote, nonprofits, right? Deeply invested in the amyloid hypothesis, 
came out and wrote an, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal disparaging me and my project and any other alternate sort of viewpoint and talking glowingly about that aducanumab drug, which at the time had yet to be approved, right? And it was so like painful to me at the time because I was like working on this project out of the love and passion that I had for my mom and my desire to get the science out, to catalyze you know, interest in this science. It takes 17 years on average for what's discovered in science to be put into day-to-day clinical practice. So I was like, that's, that's time we don't have to lose when the brains of our loved ones are at stake. Yeah, I was like directly sort of in the crosshairs at the time for this like this amyloid mafia. I was like directly affected by it because this medication is profitable. Yeah, because the medication is profitable and that the whole avenue was thought to, you know, if you could find a drug that would reduce amyloid burden in the brain, I mean, that makes, that's going to make shareholders sure. really happy. And this drug, is it still being prescribed? Yeah, it's approved. It's approved. And so there's no real way of telling how many people have died from this drug because most of the people that are taking this drug already are experiencing this neurodegenerative disease. And you could easily chalk it off to that being the cause of death. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak to like people's experiences on it currently, but I do know that, that the trials were, you know, if I had a loved one based on what I know about this drug and those trials, I, my, my loved one currently would not be on that drug. Okay. So a little bit of clarification here. Not all neurologists are prescribing aducanumab. As a matter of fact, there are universities and institutions that have come together, multidisciplinary meetings, including Loma Linda University, where they said, there's not enough evidence for this medication to be given to patients, and we're not, as an institute, going to recommend it to anyone. And I know there's so many of them. So just wanted to clarify. Especially now that it's been an, uh, stated that insurance will not cover it, and it's an expensive drug, almost nobody's giving this drug. Absolutely. And, and People the, actually have to pay out of pocket. Correct. And the window between when it was approved and when the uh, license was pulled from the insurance side of things was so small that not many people were given. And now, if anybody's using this drug, they're paying out of pocket. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, which means the numbers are extremely small. And the way that the conversation went on was as if to say that there are a lot of people getting the drug, they're not. And especially now that another drug, an amyloid drug for that matter, Mm -hmm. has come out that showed that it actually slowed down the disease by 27% in a particular cohort then of course the the direction is going to be in that and looking at that. That also is from the same family. Correct. It is a monoclonal antibody. And I just want to make sure that people don't think that their doctors and neurologists were randomly giving this medication to everyone. No, that's not happening at all. As a matter of fact, so many great neurologists just stood up and said no. Yeah, and then the rest can't give it because it was cost prohibitive for that small window. Now uh, it's almost nobody's giving it. And so, so I think we, we, we want to make sure that we don't exaggerate the harm that's being done. We were really dismayed that despite the advisors, uh, FDA went on to approve it. But uh, thank goodness the insurance aspect of it was stopped and not many people are giving it at this point. Now the focus is on another amyloid antibody, which shows 27% slowing of the disease. Again, that has to go through due diligence and investigation and what populations respond to it. And so side effects seems to be very much lower, but nonetheless, it should be investigated. Moving on. I guess it's easier to say if I had dementia, right? If I myself had dementia, I would be experimenting with a ketogenic diet on myself and other ketogenic therapies. 
because ketogenic diets, what they do. So as I mentioned in the Alzheimer's brain, the ability to generate energy from glucose is reduced by about 50%, 45, 50%. Its ability to generate energy from ketone bodies is unperturbed. So the idea is that a ketogenic diet can essentially keep the lights on in the Alzheimer's brain. It's not a cure, but there has been uh, research um, on patients with Alzheimer's disease, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, that a ketogenic diet intervention can actually improve functional capacity in those patients, which is everything, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what I would do for myself. Uh, for other people, you know, when my mom um, was starting to show these symptoms, I, I attempted to put her on some kind of like ketogenic style diet. But actually, as you, uh, what's very interesting is that people that develop Alzheimer's disease, they, they start to develop a sweet tooth. And it's thought that that's sort of like the brain crying out for sugar. So uh, the ketogenic story, we've spoken about this quite a bit. I just want to make sure that people understand that there's no bias. If there's data that shows that ketogenic diet works, we're all for it. But there's absolutely no meaningful data that ketogenic diet prevents Alzheimer's. There's no data. There's no meaningful, and I'll explain what meaningful means, data that ketogenic diet stops MCIs from going into Alzheimer's. And definitely uh, no the evidence that ketogenic diet actually reverses Alzheimer's. What there is data is short-term data, three months at the most, at small populations, 20 people, 20-something people, and with weak cognitive testing. So all three variables that how you would assess a study are always consistently weak that show maybe that there's a one point or two point uh, change in three months in MCI patients or something of that nature, but none of the other variables that are meaningful. Up to this point, we kind of were okay with what the conversation was, but at this point, it seems where we're jumping with valence, with value, uh, but quite a bit. So up to this point, we were kind of fine with the explanations of the disease and everything else, but here is where there's some ex extrapolation and some direction being given, which as we will hear going forward, it's just pushing in one direction with minimal data, starting with ketogenic diet. Although Max did actually a pretty good job saying that there's no evidence that it can reverse disease. But to speak about ketogenic diet for this much time and saying that I would put myself on ketogenic diet is actually not responsible because there's no data because there are 6.2 million people with Alzheimer's. Now, all of them, let's say that they hear this, they would put their family members that are already under a lot of stress on a very difficult diet. Anybody who really truly knows about ketogenic diet, true ketogenic diet, not the person, the young man who thinks that if they're eating steak every day, that's ketogenic diet. A true ketogenic diet, it's an extremely difficult diet, especially for a person that's in the middle of the battle. Agreed. And then to hope that that's going to do anything except one point change in MCI patients three months, it's actually meaningless. So uh, we take offense to that. We think that that creates so much harm in a large population of vulnerable people that want any hope. And what's being described as hope for in ketogenic diet is not hope. It's a statistical variance in bad studies repeatedly. We've looked at review that data. We've looked at large uh, clinical study. Well, their largest one is 20-something people. Right. The clinical trials actually didn't show any benefit. It just showed some improvement in quality of life measures, which... I don't think it's meaningful at all. And I think that because it's a rapid form of energy and cells that are already being damaged, 
that it might actually propagate disease, but we haven't, we don't have the ability to study, look at that at this point because none of the studies are more than three months. So we can't see if they actually sped up the disease. And then we hear these other studies, although Max didn't speak about this, but others say mitophagy. And they're coming up with weird mechanisms from ketogenic diet that has never been proven, not just not even in humans, but not, definitely not even in animals. And they're just making stories. And this is a method that, that's often seen or something that shows a little signal that confirms your bias, and the bias is actually meat-eating and changing the direction to one, one side, which is fat, then from that, you create reverse mechanistic processes, mitophagy and uh, methylation and all, the, and all of these things which have never been shown. So we usually take offense or not offense, but we are uncomfortable about people talking about ketogenic diet in any way at this point, especially when it comes to brain health especially in a brain that's already being damaged. Yes, you're getting, getting it energy quicker, but you might also be damaging it quicker because there's no long-term benefit. There's no short-term meaningful benefit and you might be damaging those brains. And by the way, there is so much evidence supporting the idea that a high saturated fat ketogenic diet or any diet that is high in saturated fat actually propagates the process of Alzheimer's disease and the pathology that is associated with it. It actually causes vascular damage. It causes so many other problems as far as metabolism is concerned, let alone what it does to the gut. So there's so many side effects and harmful effects of ketogenic diet that could potentially lead to damage to the neurons and the vasculature, the brain vessels. Yeah. And, and although we will speak about this again, but when it came to ApoE4, that conversation was never had is that one of the mechanisms was lipid transport and inflammation and the fact that people who eat high saturated fat diets and have ApoE4 have a higher risk. Why is that? Why was that never even brought up? I mean, it appears that I'm not impugning him, but he, Max is a bright guy, definitely, and he's done his work. And that's a piece of information that's right on the surface and that never came up here. Right. I think it was important for, for this to be discussed at the get-go that ApoE4 or having the ApoE4, whether it's one copy or two copy, essentially means that individuals will have difficulty metabolizing lipids. And, and as usually I bring up uh, the comedian Red Skelton, doctor, it hurts when I do this. The answer is, don't do that. Well, doctor, my ApoE4 is the type that is damaged and damages the body when you have high lipids, well, don't have high lipids. As a matter of fact, there have actually been studies now, and this is where it's getting more and more interested. We're getting more information about that. And the concept of precision medicine is uh, really being highlighted. The way we address people having ApoE4 as far as lifestyle intervention is concerned, as opposed to people who don't have ApoE4 is also different. They've done some studies which shows that when people have copies of ApoE4, they actually do better or they have less manifestations of the disease when their diet is essentially lower in fat and people who saturated have fat. Uh, saturated fats, exactly. And people who don't have ApoE4, they tend to do much better with a Mediterranean style diet, which is high in poly and monounsaturated fats. So we're actually learning more and more as far as the small changes of how people metabolize fat in their bodies and when they have uh, ApoE4 or when they don't have it. So can't really just, you know, uh, make a sweeping comment like that. Let's continue. Oh, it's super hard. And you get drugs that, you know, one of them, the Menda, it's like an NMDA receptor uh, modulator. And then you get another one, Donapezil, which works to boost 
you know, acetylcholine. They're just bi- they're biochemical band-aids. They do not, nothing to address the underlying pathology. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was literally until it, I believe 2020 was the year or 20, 2017, I think was the first time that the Lancet Neurology acknowledged that um, a significant proportion of dementia cases were attributable to modifiable risk factors. So that's sort of their way of saying that, look, you can put, there's a significant proportion of these cases that are potentially preventable, right? Obesity, type two diabetes. Yeah. Smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, air pollution, hearing impairment. Alcohol, uh, air pollution. Air pollution. Really? Yeah. As of 2020, that has now been acknowledged to be a major contributor. Yeah. The paper came out in Alzheimer's Association conference that um, the modifiable factors were involved in 2017 or so. Correct. Uh, but we've been speaking about this for a long time. In fact, we our book came out in 2017 and we have been speaking about the modifiable risk factors prior to that because of our work at Global Linda and other research that we looked into and our own research. Correct. Okay that the modifiable factors such as uh, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, cholesterol, and um, hearing loss, and all of these other factors are profoundly important in contributing to their outcome. In fact, we said as much as 90% of uh, Alzheimer's can be pushed back enough where during normal lifespan, in America, normal lifespan, in 78 years, they will see the disease. So that's about pushing the disease past uh, normal lifespan for a great majority of population. Yeah, we definitely think that lifestyle is a big factor. We've been working on this since, uh, well, when I was at NIH in the early 2000s. And um, yet at the same time, we, we're not going to throw away the amyloid component completely out because that is a component, that is a factor, that is a, an element that we can influence and, and treat. Um, of course, we have to be incredulous about the pharmaceutical companies and their drive to make money, but we have to have a broader perspective and not a binary one. Here's the next topic. I mean, the thing about amyloid is that it's like our body, our brains produce it. It's not necessarily bad the same way that like cholesterol, you know, we, when you hear the term cholesterol, like, you know, we think of it as this, as this bad pathologic thing that we want to get out of our bodies. Right. But cholesterol is vital to life, right? Like we need it. Same with amyloid. Amyloid helps you formulate hormones. Hormones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. At, at every cell membrane like requires cholesterol. To yeah. Supple and fluid, right? Which is vegans don't want to hear that ever. They don't want to hear that. I panic. Well, I, yeah, I butt heads with them all the time. Of course. Yeah. Well, it's an ideology, you know, unfortunately. It's an ideology based on a really good premise. The premise is you want to do less, less harm. You want to be a, a more ethical, moral, kinder person. And I respect their motivation. The problem is in practice, it, both in monocrop agriculture, which is horrific for the environment, and then also in the effects on the human body, it, it's very difficult to do correctly. You know, and we've had conversations before, and unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of people, they are propagandizing this ideology. They're doing it like it's a religion. And that's how they treat it. They, they ignore any evidence to the contrary. They, they won't even look at eggs, which are really kind of, I mean, if you have chickens or if you know someone has chickens or if you can get eggs from a place that has free range chickens, it's like zero ethical dilemma. It's they lay eggs every day. <laughs> They're not going to be chickens. It's just free protein. If you let these chickens roam around and eat grass and bugs and do the stuff they're supposed to do, you have literally one of the most healthy sources of food that's available to the human body. And it's ethically free. 
Like if you're a person that's a vegan and you're doing it for moral purposes, but you recognize the fact that you're not getting the appropriate amount of nutrition, get chickens. If you have a backyard, get some chickens. They lay an egg almost every day and they're better for you than any egg that you're going to buy in the store from grain fed chickens. And you don't have to worry about them being treated horrifically. So uh, here's a point about vegans and we're vegans. And um, I, I do agree that you cannot become dogmatic. And even with vegans, you cannot be dogmatic as far as the data is concerned. You can have beliefs and we have beliefs that exploiting animals is wrong and that's not the future of humanity. We believe that exploitation of animals at the rate we're doing or, or in any way is actually causing harm to our environments. And there's much data to that. I know there's a controversy between what the Joe Rogan's uh, says and some of the people that speak on his forum, but actually pretty much everybody kind of agrees that the net um, uh, harm that animal agriculture does to the environment is horrific. And we even say things like, you can eat meat and be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. If you eat really don't less processed it. meat, if um, you eat, yeah, yeah. Um, you can be healthier. So uh, in the context of a healthy diet, if somebody adds a little bit of meat, they're not really going to die or, you know, be diseased. No, but, they might actually do better than the standard American diet right now. hundred percent. Yeah. So, so we can't. Get rid of refined carbohydrates and replacing it with a little bit of meat. I mean, that's not going to death. Correct. People. We're not going to do it. We think that there's a healthier diet, which is hopefully plant-based and as less processed as possible and, and plant-centered. Uh, but yet at the same time, when we talk in communities, we say that we don't, our intention is not to make you vegans. Our health intention is to make sure that you have more plants. I think the most important point is there are many different ways to eat a healthy diet, right? Correct. Mediterranean diet is one of them. A whole food plant-based diet is one of them. It has to be planned, but there is no one perfect diet. Yeah. And then here it was a statement made that it's so difficult to be healthy when you're pl whole, uh, plant-based. That's actually not true. Uh, in fact, it's easier in totality to be healthier when you're whole food plant-based than any other one of those manifestations of healthy diets. Because the biggest harm that's done to us, and this is a very important point, is the elements that are being put into us through meats, even processed or unprocessed, uh, grass-fed or non-grass-fed because of the hormones, because of the prions, because of, uh, I don't want to overstate the prion components because I know somebody's going to jump there, but because of the, the cholesterol, because of the um, uh, all the other elements as far as bacteria and everything else, there's a whole slew of things, but you still have to be planned. There is no diet that you could be eating that where you, you can do it without planning, without uh, taking some things into consideration, uh, without planning to reduce certain things or increase certain things. And a whole food plant-based diet, you should be aware of your B12. Everybody actually, 40% of Americans, whether they're whole food plant-based or not, should be aware of B12. And now we know that you should be aware of your omega-3 fatty acid standard. Everybody yeah. should be aware of their omega-3 uh, when we're, where they're getting it. And yes, it's more difficult for plant-based people because they're getting it for ALA as a conversion. But there's no data that you can't get enough from that direction. And there's data that everybody should be more aware of their omega-3. So if you're young or if you're older, which we did two review papers, two massive reviews, the trends show that you should, you know, be aware of it excessively and maybe take supplements. And we take supplements. We take omega-3 because we think it's important. We are not selling any brands. We're not pushing any brands. But the data shows that that's the case, not just for plant-based people or otherwise. The reason I'm bringing this up is a lot of times people act like as if if you're being eating hopefully plant-based or plant-centered, that you have to be more aware or it's more difficult. Absolutely not the case. In fact, it's easier because 
all the negatives that are in non-plant-centered diets are eliminated. Right. From the processed components, to the sugars, to the fats, to the cholesterol, to the chemicals, to the hormones, to the antibiotics, to the, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yes, plants also are, have a lot of problems. Some of them have toxins and all that, but the net is very, very positive for health. So I just wanted to address that point of, oh, you have to be more aware. Nope. You have to be aware across the board. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And also there was uh, this incredible focus on eggs. And I think there's going to be more discussion in the, uh, in the future about eggs and including eggs and getting chicken because you're a vegan and you don't want to harm chicken. Well, first of all, you know, this, this whole focus on eggs being a healthy food is flawed. When Where's the data? When you look at data that has been published, it shows that, yes, cholesterol does not cause harm. It doesn't actually cause atherosclerosis, but there's a big correlation between consumption of saturated fat and cholesterol, and it's not as clean as we know of it yet. It does contribute to cardiovascular disease. And we have data from large populations that when people consume a lot of eggs, probably not going to get harmed if they eat one egg every now and then. But if there's a accumulation of eggs in their diet, however healthy it may be, it can actually contribute to cardiovascular disease. So I don't know where this data comes from that egg is a superfood and that people should consume it for brain health or general health. And, and this is where I have a problem where people are pretending to be scientists or science-based, yet all of a sudden they make a jump. A huge leap because it fits their, their concepts, their, their belief systems. Talk about belief systems and dogma. The very nature of a person who goes vegan or plant-based says that they actually fought a dogma to get there. Now, they should still stay out of dogma because they, there's a tendency to become dogmatic, and we've experienced that. But the very nature of you know, changing lifestyle, especially the two of us who grew up with, we had family members that were hunters. We had a Gosh. farm. In Virginia, where we used to go, uh, my uncles are surgeons, we used to go hunting, and we were terrible hunters, thank, uh, thank goodness. But, but uh, we used to go eat all the time. We, we, when we met in Afghanistan, my breakfast was meat, lunch, dinner. So that was my bias. So we changed from that. We grew up in a household where we had <clears throat> freezers, where you would like, oh, yes. open the, the top, top yes. right? We, we had, had one of those. two of them in the basement. Okay, you beat me by one. And yeah. my dad would buy like half a cow. Yeah. He would actually drive down like two hours somewhere, get half a cow, and we would have meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Absolutely. I mean, it was like a very normal thing for us to have meat on a regular basis. So it's not like we were born into this concept, but it just, yeah, it, does, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and with eggs, we're okay. Ethics, yeah, there's exploita exploitation of an animal thing, but that's okay. Let's say that we're okay with eggs because it really is not life. It, and they, it chickens produce a, a slew of eggs. You're right. But again, where is the data? You can't just say choline, therefore eggs, therefore brain. That level of extrapolation is ridiculous and doesn't make sense. That data in itself is kind of flawed and we'll get to uh, No, that. no, no. Besides the flawed nature, just the jump and in, in the leap in logic. Uh, so I want to make sure that people who are listening to us is like, we're not coming to it from a vegan perspective, from a dogmatic perspective. Where's the data? With fish, we told you, the data shows that if you eat, you know, smaller fish, salmon, mackerel, a and couple of times a couple week, times yeah. a week it's, it might be beneficial for your brain. You can do it without it. Mm -hmm. You can get the same benefit with supplementation. And okay. yeah, 
But but that that so we're going to that extent as far as sticking to the science. But all of a sudden, eggs. Where does that come from? Moving on. It's I mean the the yolk. It's like again co- a cognitive multivitamin. And it's it's no surprise that uh, egg yolk people are you know like vegans are they they just see red right whenever you say cholesterol whenever they see that like there's cholesterol in a food. But right. but it's. It, it should be no surprise that an egg yolk is rich in cholesterol because the brain is rich in cholesterol, mm. right? Like despite accounting for only 2% of your body's mass, 25% of the cholesterol in your body is located in your brain. That doesn't mean that you have to, you don't need to eat cholesterol to support brain health. Your brain produces all the cholesterol it needs. It's called de novo cholesterol synthesis. But an egg yolk has a little bit of vitamin B12. It's got choline. Choline is one of these like crucially important micronutrients that 90% Actually, the adequate intake for choline is probably less than, than what it should be for when you account for our brain's needs. But 90% of adults don't consume adequate choline. Yeah, acetylcholine is uh, a primary ingredient of many nootropics, which have been shown to improve brain function. Yeah, it's a super important um, neurotransmitter involved in learning and memory. And in fact, one of the drugs that's prescribed for Alzheimer's disease modulates that, uh, that cholinergic sort of pathway. But yeah, choline is crucially important. It's found in egg yolks. I think egg yolks, Maybe is uh, second place to like beef liver, which is a, which is the top source for dietary choline. But again, something that we underconsume. And studies show that people who consume more choline have reduced risk for um, dementia. Okay, I want to stop here because there's actually no evidence that when people have low consumption of choline, their risk of dementia goes up. There's absolutely no evidence. As a matter of fact, I think uh, we we've spoken about this before. As far as the recommended daily allowance or the requirement for choline is concerned, we actually don't have a, an exact number. Yes, we have a roundabout, but that has been fudged a little bit based on some studies of very, very sick people who actually had choline deficiency. Infants. Infants. And they tended to have multiple diseases or health issues, and cognitive impairment was one of them. So we can't really base our need for choline on a study that was done on extremely sick people. Most likely reverse causality. And yes, we're learning more and more about choline. There are multiple papers that show that choline is important, especially for uh, pregnant women and newborns. But unfortunately, it's not very clear as of yet. And there are a lot of other food sources that do have choline in them as well that are plant-based. So that data is not very clear as of yet. And I wouldn't put so much emphasis on choline and brain health. And by the way, for a lot of times, uh, both Max and Joe um, talk about the data and strength of data. There is no data that consumption of choline improves brain health. Yeah. There is no meaningful, strong data that shows that the consumption of choline. Otherwise, studies would be telling all of us that everybody should take choline. Right. And, and, and in fact, excessive choline has been shown to increase inflammation and all of that stuff as well. So it's critical that we make sure that we don't, again, extrapolate data out of nowhere. Uh, there is no relationship. Now, choline is an important um, uh, neurotransmitter. Acetylcholine is an important neurotransmitter. But by just eating it or taking it, it doesn't mean that it's going to be digested properly and then cross the blood-brain barrier. That evidence is not there. Absolutely, this relationship. And then on top of that, Oh, if you eat eggs, here's that leap upon leap upon leap. Eggs have choline. Therefore, if you eat eggs, independent of all the harm from cholesterol, the data, and that will actually benefit your brain. And also saying something to the effect that eggs are a multivitamin for the brain. 
Again, I ask, where is the evidence? Where is the evidence that people who consumed eggs did so much better than everybody else? Where is the evidence that people who consumed it, good studies, we're not talking about a study that was a, a three months, six months, and, and, and a small population, and that showed that people who consumed an, uh, eggs actually had lower prevalence of Alzheimer's or cognitive enhancement. There is no such data. So for people who actually say that data is important, it appears that belief here is pushing them to extrapolate beyond the data. He actually mentioned two foods. He said egg yolks and beef liver. Oh. So, you know, emphasizing specific foods as being healthy for the brain is absolutely false because people don't eat one food at a time. We eat multiple different foods. And that's why we've completely negated looking at quote unquote superfoods. There's no such thing as superfoods. We don't eat one thing at all. It's in the context of everything else that we eat. That's why when you look at studies from Russia University or while Cornell, I mean, he calls Richard Isaacson his mentor. I mean, Richard Isaacson's book is revolving mostly about the Mediterranean and the mind diet. Nowhere in the Mediterranean and the mind diet is there a description or a mention of beef liver included in it or eggs for that matter. When you look at it, it essentially highlights consumption of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and in fruits, it's not all fruits. It's specifically berries, strawberries to be specific, and blueberries. It's whole grains. Yes, whole grains are included in the mind of the Mediterranean diet. So yeah, and nuts and, and seeds, we'll and especially when you talked about the breadhead. Breadhead, yeah. Yeah, grains are beneficial. Yeah, it, it, legumes, beans, chickpeas, all kinds of legumes, including peanuts, and you know, inclusion of fish. Fish is a part of the mind diet, as well as poultry. The difference between Mediterranean <clears throat> and mind diet is the mind diet actually highlighted the foods that were clearly associated with lower risk of cognitive decline. And they found that, that people don't have to eat too much fish or too much chicken. They actually reduce the frequency of consumption or the need for fish in the mind diet. So even eating it a couple of times a week was more than enough. And that diet, I mean, we have so much data that the mind diet has been associated with lower risk of development of dementia. 53% lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Just for clarity's sake, um, and the, the reason that chicken and fish and not without chicken and fish uh, has not been studied in mind is because that's what they looked at. They didn't have data on no meat at all. So within the spectrum of diets that had meat, less chicken, less fish was the bene- what was shown to be beneficial. The mind and the Mediterranean diet scoring system is a construct. So you get high scores when you consume vegetables, berries, nuts and seeds, legumes, whole grains, fish, and you know a couple of times of chicken per week. And then you get a low score when you consume red meat, processed meats, high-fat dairy products. So, and, and when you look at that category, you can understand why. It's because these foods usually come with a lot of saturated fats and saturated fats have been clearly associated with increased risk of dementia whether it was the study that was published by Dr. Martha Morris um, in Rush University, or when you look at the studies by Dr. Scarmaeus in Columbia University. And, you know, Richard Isaacson, Max's mentor, believes this, and he talks about it in multiple different forms, in his book, in his interviews. So I am not sure where this information about beef liver being an extremely good food for a brain comes from. It's pure extrapolation. Liver has multiple, you know, 
uh, enzymes and protein and fats and things of that nature, then it must be good. I mean, that level of science makes you worried about the person depicting that level of science. Okay, here's the next segment. What do you think about these uh, desiccated supplements of heart and liver and testicles and all these things that you see being sold now? I have a friend of mine who is in the medical field and he's very concerned about this because he's like, I don't know what, whether or not these things could contain prions, whether they like, how are they taking these? Like you're eating beef liver. How is this processed? What is the source? Like, how do you know what's in these things? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we likely consume, our ancestors probably consumed brain early on as a good source of DHA fat which is one of the most important structural building blocks of the brain, right? Docosahexaenoic acid, DHA fat. I think it's a, it's a valid concern, although, you know, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't like look, looked into it too deeply. I do think that liver is a great food. It's one of the most nutrient-dense foods there is. And I do think that there is a little bit of truth, at least in the case of liver, where like supports like. Like we know that beef liver is a top source of choline, right? And we know that choline directly supports liver health because it helps to export fat. So choline is actually a good treatment for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because mm. it helps to get fat out of the liver. So in that way, I think eating liver can support liver health. And the liver is like a crucially, I mean, it's a vital organ, obviously, but it plays hundreds of roles in the body. It tastes good too. You just have to eat, cook it right. So eating liver is good for liver? And eating brain is good for brain. And who said that all of our ancestors ate brains? Like how often did our ancestors have the opportunity to crack open up a skull and eat a brain? And the funny thing is, Joe actually speaks to this disease, uh, Kuru and uh, prion diseases that came out of eating brains. So there were a lot of populations that actually ate brains. And later on, people found out that they developed this horrible mad cow kind of a disease or a prion disease that is an early onset degenerative disease of the brain because they ate brains like uh, works towards like and therefore if you have liver disease you eat liver then it's beneficial for you if you have brain problems or if you want your brain to be benefited take eating brain that's not the case i don't want to be one of those to extrapolate but there's evidence that maybe because we are closer to these organisms like cows and others that because of that proximity Diseases like prion and prion-like processes could actually happen in us and propagate the aging of our body, not just because of methylation and glycosylation and all of that, but many other processes because of the, our like nature. So this line of conversation, by the way, what I just said is not a proven science, but there's a lot of data that speaks to that. So take it for that. Here's where I'm saying that's a bit of extrapolation. I want to make sure that I speak to the science that's, uh, that's as close to the proven as possible. But people eating liver for health benefit, there's no data. Absolutely not. Uh, or eating brains, there's actually data to the contrary. So that's disturbing because one time when we were in a conference with him, bone broth, by the way, the conversation from bone broth comes from this kind of uh, the extrapolation because it's, it's bone, it's got that bone marrow, marrow is neuronal tissue and all these chemicals and hormones and collagen and everything else. Therefore, when you eat it, it's going to be beneficial for you. There's absolutely no data, no meaningful data. So it's, it's very disturbing that now we're getting in this conversation in, in realms of extrapolation, extreme extrapolation for that matter. Let's continue. 
a lot of people don't like the texture. They feel weird about eating it. But once you realize the nutritional value of liver, you know, liver and onions is delicious. Yeah, super tasty. I think like cooking it kind of rare, getting a nice sear on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I like cooking it in ghee. Okay. Yeah. I have a uh, use beef tallow. Oh, beef tallow. That's a good option. I actually, um, my thoughts on dairy have evolved kind of recently. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I, I get like on social media, especially like on Instagram, I get a lot of shit from pretty much everybody. Like the vegans don't like me, right? Because I promote animal products. The carnivores don't like me because I'm a big believer in the value of dietary fiber and plant, you know, phytochemicals and the like. Uh, the evidence-based like credentialist community doesn't like me because I'm not a, you know, I don't have any, any credentials after my name. But yeah, and then the paleo community, because I, I recently have sort of come out sort of not being a huge fan of like butter and, and ghee. You know, I'm a huge fan of dairy and dairy fat in general, which dairy fat, so all natural fat containing foods contain some proportion of saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat, right? So like any natural fat containing food is going to contain some saturated fat. So demonizing any type of fat, I think doesn't make any sense. Including right? avocados. Yeah. Avocados are great. Like avocados are mostly monounsaturated fat. I think people should steer clear from as best they can the grain and seed oils, like the canola, yeah. corn, soybean. I definitely wanted to talk to you about that because controversial. This is, I've been trying to have this conversation with my family because they'll buy salad dressing and say it's healthy. I'm like, do you ever read what's in this shit? What are the criticisms uh, against seed oils but this specifically? Like I, I've seen you speak about grape seed oil, which is a really fascinating one because it really wasn't something that was in the human diet until, you, as you were saying, that winemakers realize, hey, like we're leaving money on the table. You yeah. know, grape seed, turn this shit into oil. Yeah. So again, some industrious uh, entrepreneur saw that as a byproduct of winemaking, you're losing out on all these grape seeds, right? And grape seeds are rich in oil, like all seeds are, right? So if you can extract the oil and get rid of the noxious like aromas and flavors, then you've got something that you can sell, right? For, for I think it's like a five hundred or six hundred million dollar a year business, if not more, these days. So grapeseed oil, like any of these grain and seed oils, like corn oil, uh, canola oil, which comes from the rapeseed plant, soybean oil, they're referred to sometimes within the food industry as RBD oils, refined, bleached, and deodorized oil. One of the problems with these seed oils is that that deodorization step creates a small but significant amount of trans fats, and we know that there's no safe level of trans fat artificially, you know, man-made trans fat consumption. Their most uh, recognizable form was in uh, partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which were outlawed, right? Five, six years ago, something like that. Um, but you can still find man-made trans fats on the market in the form of these grated seed oils. Now, the dose likely makes the poison, as it does with most things. But your average um, American today is over-consuming these oils. Well, I mean, they didn't exist, again, in the human food supply prior to a century ago. And their use has increased anywhere between uh, 250 and 1,000%. 1,000% for soybean oil, in particular, which is the most commonly used. Um, grain and seed oil. And so we're overconsuming these fats. They harbor these trans fats. When we cook with them in particular, when we expose them to high heat, especially for prolonged periods of time, they generate poisons called aldehydes. And some of these aldehydes are really toxic. I mean, they're neurotoxic, they're mutagenic, I mean, they're cancer causing. You know, one such aldehyde is acrolein. Acrolein is found in, in uh, cigarette smoke. Um, it's found in all kinds of industrial pollutants. And we can see it in the brains of people with, with Alzheimer's. Like, how is it produced you know, in cigarettes? Sorry, to but how, how does cigarette smoke produce alkaline? Well, I'm not 100% sure as to how it's produced in cigarettes, but it is a byproduct of like the burning of garbage and, you know, it's created in, in myriad industrial processes. Like it has nothing to do with the heat. Probably the heat. And whatever the plant compound. Heat and oxygen. Mm. Yeah. The, the coalesce, you know, the, the coalescent of heat, oxygen, light. 
So what about if it's not being heated up? Like what about seed oils as they exist in salad dressings and the like? Well, I think one of the big fears, um, another big fear with regard to these oils is that they might not be acutely inflammatory. So I think a lot of people, and this get, this is what tends to get pushed back among the evidence-based crowd on social media. You'll hear claims that these oils are inflammatory. And I think this is more an issue of semantics. They're not acutely inflammatory, but they may be chronically inflammatory. All right. So he talks about evidence-based crowd as if it's a bad thing. <laughs> if not evidence-based, then evidence -based what? Evidence-based crowd. And this is problematic because this, is, this comes with thought. When you take a particular population and you negate them, you demean them, you use pejorative or pejorative tone, you're actually what you're doing, which we see a lot of times in functional medicine group and stuff, is like the people out there, the scientists. Well, he actually does say that everybody hates them, right? Everybody yeah. dislikes them. I don't think he used the word hate. I don't remember. But he says that they, you know, vegans don't like him. Paleo people don't like him. The carnivores don't like him. The evidence-based crowd doesn't, don't like him. I think this, this is a complete ideology where they say, I have something to say. And I'm trying to help everyone, but everybody's sticking to their own dogma. I'm hoping that he avoids this kind of attack because for people, for evidence-based people, people, it actually speaks to the fact that uh, there's some uh, chicanery going on here. There's some, some trickery going on here. This is the idea that a lot of the uh, charlatans, and I'm not saying that's him, but, but he should be aware that this is, this is how it's construed. They, which is everybody else, because he included everybody else, is against me and I have something different. If you're going to accept one group and you want to be part of one group, it should be evidence-based. And evidence-based doesn't mean a myopic evidence-based. Then they're not evidence-based. A good evidence-based scientist is one that takes the small picture, the data that's in front of them, and also contextualizes it to a larger picture. That's an evidence-based person. So I would really hope that he stops using evidence-based as a negative thing. We're becoming a society that negates uh, expertise, negates professionalism, negates knowledge, and just says that this feels good to me and this is the way I am or my uncle felt this and my uncle smoked for, uh, and he lived 90, 100 years. These are all self-serving, self-promoting, in a way, it's belief-based as opposed to evidence-based. Agreed. And that's critical that if you're going to talk to, about science... Feeling-based. Feeling-based. Feeling-based rather it's, than it's, evidence -based. And And, you know, we, we were listening to a, a conversation about um, David Hume, the philosopher, and, and something shocking. He said, if you want to convince people, you can't do it through logic, so you have to do it through feeling. But I disagree. I, if we continue doing this, which is not just their feeling, but your feeling only and negating everybody else, we're going to have a population of confused people, everybody just uh, doing confirmation bias for their own feeling. Evidence-based is not a bad thing. Evidence-based is the way that we should all hope to uh, converse, to change healthcare at the minimum, to change society in general. So I, he's used that evidence base in a pejorative several times, and that really disturbed me. There was a conversation about seed oils before all of this, and it's difficult not to get frustrated when you hear about seed oils. And there have been so many other fantastic nutritionists, registered dietitians, and scientists and cardiologists who have talked about 
seed oil and its relationship with cardiovascular outcomes are concerned. And we will definitely put some links to these beautiful conversations. The our friend Simon Hill and Matthew Nagra had a really good conversation about that. So we'll put uh, the links to these conversations in the show notes. But generally speaking, I think you know, seed oils have been misunderstood. Their association with health outcomes has been completely tainted. Um, they're not as bad as people portray them to be. As a matter of fact, when you look at long-term studies, whether it's rape seed, the, the word rape comes from rapam, which means turnip, you know, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, mustard are related to rape seed, and they've been changed to canola now. They're called canola oil. And the other oils in that category are not as unhealthy as they are portrayed to be. This actually comes from multiple different sites, even in the plant-based world where they're completely demonizing oil and seed oil, whether it's olive oil or uh, seed oils. That's not true. We're actually learning more and more about it. And we have to make sure that we look at the entirety of the data rather than just kind of follow this particular ideology. There's a lot of great data out there and we'll definitely put it in the show notes. But I want to make sure that we don't have any data when it comes to brain health, though. We can extrapolate from heart health, from other uh, data, but just for transparency's sake, to show that we only go with the data with evidence-based, the data when it comes to brain is not as robust yet. Well, I think we talked about this already, Dean. You know, when it comes to food and brain health, the strongest data that we have for brain health is from the studies that looked at mind dietary pattern. That, that's the only one. When you look at different yes. particular food items, whether it's whole grains, whether it's beans, whether it's greens and various... It really doesn't matter because you have to look at the entire dietary pattern and that's what people are trying to focus on instead of looking at particular foods. It's not beef liver, I can promise you that. It's not egg yolks. It's not ghee or saturated fats. It's not even just blueberries. You know, I love blueberries, but it's not just that. It's what you eat as a whole, as a dietary pattern and what you continuously tend to eat. And the small little mistakes you make here and there, they don't even matter. So the dietary factor matters, and the only piece of data that we have that strongly supports the relationship between diet and brain health is the mind dietary pattern. Here's the next topic. But these grain and seed oils, you know, they're sitting on the shelf in plastic. They're sitting, uh, you know, with extra virgin olive oil, for example. One of the tips that I offer people when buying extra virgin olive oil, which I think is medicine in many ways to the brain, is you want to buy it in small bottles, right? It's a small glass opaque bottles because extra virgin olive oil, unlike wine, only degrades over time. So there's no like appreciation that occurs with time. Extra virgin olive oil is medicine for the brain. True or false? Absolutely false. And this is coming from the two of us who've gotten in trouble in many of the realms. I'm sounding like him now. Like everybody thinks <laughs> it's because of, yeah, no, no, no not really. But, uh, and say that um, extra virgin olive oil is uh, not bad and that there's some evidence that it's actually good. But medicine for the brain? Come on. That's, that's too much. That's too much of a leap. You know, you're going, if somebody believes you, and a lot of people are watching this, millions of people are going to now start drinking extra virgin olive oil in cups. In fact, I had a patient where I said, you know, if you're going to have a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, it's fine. And he came back with a bottle in about a, a few weeks. And, and I said, why did you bring this? He said, yeah, I have three glasses of this every day. No, it's not medicine for the brain. In small amounts, it has been shown to be uh, okay, and not harmful, and maybe some benefit over time, yeah. but not medicine for the brain. Uh, extra virgin olive oil is delicious. It's uh, part of the mind diet. Uh, it's 
monosaturated fats, which are great. It actually has been associated with better lipid profile as well. But come on, you know, it's a highly processed food and it has a ton of calories. So for people who are dealing with metabolic issues, which half of the United States population are. They just said 40% are obese. Right. So if you really want to lower your weight, which in itself is a phenomenal thing to do for your brain health and for your cardiovascular outcome, you don't want to overdose on olive oil. And then when we talk about olive oil and when we use olive oil, we, we give all these other conditions as well, that if you have, you know, weight issues and if you have uh, cardiovascular issues, uh, then you should be more aware and reduce it even more. But if those are not an issue, then in small amounts, the, the evidence shows that it's okay. Yeah, there's really no need to glorify olive oil more than it needs to be. In any case, let's move on. I like to take the precautionary principle approach, right? These oils, again, they didn't exist in the human food supply, right? I don't have all the data to convince the most ardent evidence-based practitioner. I like to say that my approach is evidence-based, but not evidence-bound. I think that we need to be highly skeptical of foods, especially foods and supplements and products that haven't been around all that long, right? It's just a, a mass sort of experiment being laid out on a vast stage. And I don't think that we have the, we don't have good data to say what they are or aren't doing, right? To us necessarily. But I do think that because these oils are so easily oxidized and they're of particular relevance to the brain, right? I think that matters. We don't yet know what they're doing to our brains. Lipid peroxidation is a major feature in the Alzheimer's riddled brain, right? So this is nothing more than just a fear tactic, you know? They haven't been around for a long time, so we don't know what it does to our brain. And from some mechanistic studies, we've seen that it causes some inflammatory reaction, therefore they're bad. I just don't see that relationship being panned out properly and applied to populations. Who said that our ancestors lived long and healthy lives? Who said that they had access to all kinds of healthy foods to begin with? There are just so many holes and so many gaps in that logic. Using the precautionary principle where it serves our purpose, but yet with precautionary principles, when it comes to cholesterol, where there's actually data, we're not using that precautionary principle there because- Long-term data. Long-term data, because then it would counter the narrative that I shouldn't eat as much meat or meat at all. The fact that I should be eating less you know, fat and saturated fat. So precautionary principle, when it comes to something unusual and weird because that it's a good argument, the seeds, but not precautionary principle when there's data, profound amount of data when it comes to cholesterol, fat, saturated fat, and everything else. That's unusual. And then I, I really was um, thrown off by this thing that I'm, ev I'm not evidence-based. No, I'm I'm evidence-based, but I'm not evidence-bound. So meaning that there are times that you're outside of evidence or using data outside of evidence. How are you validating that new data? Using what? your extrapolations. So you still have to use evidence and scientific methodology and let that, and then by the way, not just yours, they keep talking about humility and arrogance of scientists. The belief that your belief, yes, you have some other people that have the same belief, but it's actually your belief that's the one that's right and not the cumulative data and the number of scientists that support that data is that's wrong. There should be challenge to that, like with the amyloid, that it's not the only way. There are other ways as well. Agree. But when it's data that's repeatedly has been shown, both epidemiologically, prospectively, clinical trials, then we're then then that's actually thrown away. Yeah. So this is all over the place. Evidence based, not evidence bound. Beautiful little 
play on words, but meaningless. Um, so now I don't want to sound very in attack mode, but uh, it's really disturbing that it, now it's just extrapolations and I belief systems and ideas from liver to chicken to um, eggs and seeds. I think we're all over the place now. Okay, here's the next segment. This DMB, so people can easily find it. Um, it's one of these like long, complex, but I don't mind. Like I'm not, you know, there's a good, like one of these like foods that's like oddly satiating. Mm. Um, it can reduce uh, postprandial glycemia. So like the blood sugar spike after a meal. Uh, yeah. So vinegar is a great, great food. See, balsamic vinegar does have a little bit of sugar in it, but I don't mind. Like I'm not, you know, like I think that the benefits outweigh the risks. And also vinegar, balsamic vinegar has a compound in it. Uh, I forget what the acronym stands for, but the acronym is DMB. So people can easily find it. Um, it's one of these like long, complex chemical chemical designations. But uh, that's been shown to actually support gut health, like support the microbiome, particularly for people who consume a lot of red meat, mm. which is awesome, which I do. I consume like I'm a big advocate for, you know, the consumption of grass-fed beef and things like that. So is he saying that red meat messes up your gut and therefore you should have some balsamic vinegar to fix things? I think so. I think so. Um, I, and he's done that a couple of times. He did the same thing with fat, the, the saturated fat. He actually said it's not nothing wrong with it. I know there was some nuance, but then other places he was uh, circumspect and said, we have to be careful and so on and so forth. And here, there are some hints that, oh, I eat a lot of meat, but I, you know, this DMB is, is going to help me protect me uh, against the red meat and its effect on microbiome. Let's move on. I think balsamic vinegar is great. I happen to love it. And also people that eat a salad every day. So this is a really cool research from Rush University. Found that people who eat a big bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger. Wow. Yeah. So this could be like healthy user bias. Like again, nutrition, even my, the recommendations that I make, like, you know, a lot of healthy user bias confounds many um, of these kinds of studies in the world of nutrition, because we just don't have many long term randomized, you know, large right. population, multi-center randomized controlled trials, right? Does he also know that Rush University did the same study that shows that as part of the Mediterranean diet, when you eat a lot of red meat, you actually have a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? It's the same population. And he's uh, well-versed enough to know that that data exists. But again, there's a choice not to speak about that, that, that data, as it was when we spoke about APOE4. Let's continue. There are benefits and risks associated with eating anything. So I think each person has to look at each food. And also, I don't believe that there's a one-size-fits-all diet. Like, I think that some people, like, it makes sense to me why some people would do well on carnivore diets, right? right. To me, it's about kind of identifying what foods work best for you. And even things like, you know, dietary fiber. So he says that uh, he doesn't think there's one diet that fits everybody. And I agree with him. And there will be a time where we will have specific data on each individual's proteomics, genomics, enzymatics, and then we will actually adjust the lifestyle diet. Are we there? Not even close. So whatever we say must have a meaning to larger populations. To say that you, you you will find your own best diet, and he even thinks that a carnivore diet is good for some people. Okay, so where did we leave anybody with a useful piece of data? We just left everybody confused. Am I a carnivore eating person or am I a plant-based eating person? Or am I, should I eat more plants or should I eat more carnivore meats? Uh, should I eat more fats? Maybe I'm a different kind of person that I can eat 
as much um, uh, liver as I want because he said liver is good. How do you know that? So that kind of information dispersion is incredibly scary and useless and actually dangerous because what you've done is left people, which is a very common thing, where people are left, and physicians do this. Physicians do this, which is leave people at a state where they're saying, I don't know what to do. So if everything is personal and everything could be good and could be that I have to make a decision, then I'm going to go back and rest and settle to what I've been doing because it feels good. That's why we keep getting more and more obese, more and more unhealthy. There are general, those kind of statements for should never be made. A carnivore could be good or plant-based could be good. And everybody has to find their own place. We've left them completely confused. For general populations, there's plenty of evidence that more plants are better. Less saturated fat or no saturated fat is better. Being mindful of your health as far as vitamins and cholesterol and diabetes and all of that stuff is better. We know what to tell general populations, and it's important to do that kind of evidence-based information dispersion because we're dealing with millions of people that are listening. So that little segment, again, was a little chaotic and confusing and often leaves people more disempowered than anything else. I agree. Let's move on. But if you have an impaired microbiome, for example, or if your gut mucosa has become degraded, which is sort of this like demilitarized zone between your gut lumen and your gut epithelium, right? If that's become degraded over time. And what would cause that to become degraded? Well, generally it's caused by not consuming enough fiber because we see that when you don't consume enough dietary fiber over time, the bacteria, certain species of bacteria in your gut will actually eat the mucin that comprises this, this gut mucosa that sort of acts, you know, it's like this sort of bacteria-free zone um, in your large intestine that separates your, the interior constant of your gut and your gut microbiome from your epithelium. Does that balance out if, say, if someone does try to incorporate a carnivore diet or maybe even a, a version of the ketogenic diet that issues plant protein or plant matter? Are you, it, does that eventually bounce back? I mean, is that like a temporary effect where this bacteria searches for fiber? doesn't find it anymore and then attacks the mucous membrane? Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely complicated. My understanding is that uh, sometimes the root cause of these problems can be bacterial overgrowth. When you do an elimination diet like a carnivore diet, for example, you starve out the bad bacteria, right? And so you can kind of create like a milieu that's then, that ultimately then becomes more friendly to the reintroduction of these kinds of fibers, mm. at which point you can start to build up, you know, that resilience and that, and that mucosa again. I think that the, the carnivore diets are really great, like, can be a great short-term therapeutic diet. Okay, so a lot to untangle there and disimpact there. Pardon the pun. <clears throat> so basically, carnivore, short-term carnivore diet can be healthy because it gives the gut a break to get rid of the bad microbiome and then you can build the good microbiome on top of it. Is there any data that supports that? Absolutely nothing. I mean, now we're in the realm of just hearsay, not even hearsay. There's absolutely no data. We know that the microbiome is so dependent on fiber and plants. That piece of information is not even questionable. Um, uh, yet again, 
just so that we can force the carnivore conversation or the meat conversation into this, we create a contorted argument which has never been supported. In fact, the idea of microbiome being supported by plants and fiber is strong enough to speak to a more plant-centered diet. Absolutely. And, yeah. and against a meat-centered diet. Yet here we see a contortion around, without any data, to make an argument for an uh, elimination using carnivore diet? Where is the data on that? By the way, he offered a solution for the damage that meat causes to the gut, which was balsamic vinegar. So, you know, he said that he takes balsamic vinegar to mitigate the damage that red meat could cause to the microbiome. And now he offers a carnivore diet to reset the gut microbiome. I think it kind of clashes. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the population that wants to hear meat is good, and this confirmation bias, is so massive that a lot of the people out there in social media are, I mean, the very bias that they accuse vegans of or plant-based people of, actually, it's much more there because the ability to move away from this wave of population that wants an argument, wants a push towards meat and fat is so large that you see good people making contorted arguments to fit this population. Everybody wants to be on Joe Rogan's show because Joe Rogan wants to hear that meat is good. And although he's a fair guy, he's a bright guy, my God, he's a bright, but he, he wants to hear that and he wants people to actually contort themselves to say it. And yet Max, which I kind of liked, he's, the, these things slip out of him saying that, yeah, olive oil helps the damage from red meat. Yes. Uh, plants and fiber is good for microbiome, and yet uh, you need a, a a carnivore period of exclusion. Right. These are are contortions of logic. These are escapes from logic. This these are escapes from data that are not necessary. We ourselves say, find the data and let that speak for itself, whether it's for or against something. And if your belief system. Or the way you want to live a certain way, and we want to live a plant-centered way, a vegan way because of our environment. But we, but if the data shows something else, we say, that's the data. And let people live in that way for the larger population, whatever is healthy. But it's got to be evidence-based and data-driven, Absolutely. not just uh, extrapolations. Okay, here's the next segment. The hormetic effect totally makes sense if you take into consideration other hormetic effects that we accept as being beneficial like the sauna yeah or like a cold plunge things along those lines where your body's reacting to this intruder or this uh, invasion of uh, excess heat or cold and producing this beneficial effect to the overall body yeah i totally i mean i totally agree with that as well i mean i'm a huge fan of sauna especially with regards to dementia prevention if you use a sauna two to three times a week you slash your risk of developing dementia by 22%. Wow. Four to seven times per week, 65%. Wow. There's not a drug on the market that is going to slash your risk of developing dementia by 65%. Okay. So sauna and um, dementia risk reduction. Um, yes, there have been publications about that. It was specifically studied in Finland. And in Finland, I think there's so many saunas. I think there are one sauna for every third person. 
and they've done some studies and these numbers, uh, you know, they are, they're real, they're in a paper, but this hasn't really been validated in any other population. And when you look at the socioeconomic status of these individuals, they're highly educated, they have lower cardiovascular risk factors, they don't smoke, they don't drink very much, they're generally very, very healthy, and they're longer living population. Healthy user bias. I mean, if, if there's any bias like that, it's that because who gets access to sauna, first of all? Right. I know it's Finland, but but still, the access is, there's a cost to it. Who gets tw- two times a week versus several times a week? Mm-hmm. That speaks to a lot of other confounds that must be taken into consideration before you say, no, it's sauna. Now, we're open to that data. We actually would love to know something that's as simple and as clean as sauna that could be that beneficial. But immediately, I see such incredible confound that could be as an explanatory uh, cause of this than just sauna. Absolutely. Uh, so we, we, we can't just jump to that conclusion. They're essentially assumptions. And I was kind of shocked when I was reading the, the paper in the, you know, in the discussion section, they were talking about how sauna or that extreme heat actually regulates blood pressure. It regulates metabolism of glucose. It actually even talked about the activation of heat shock proteins, which assist in control protein formation. That's a huge leap. The only thing I was waiting for was it was going to balance your chi. And then I was on board. Here's the next topic. But I want to also talk about fluoride. Like, why is it even in the water? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. We do know why there's fluoride in the water. It's uh, for the prevention of dental cavities and caries. There's been some back and forth in questions that we need more data to see whether it's necessary for us to add fluoride to water. But I think we do know why fluoride is added to uh, Yeah, the water. reason was a public health reason. And if anybody has doubts, go to some countries where uh, dental care is not there. You know the difference between dental care between country to country. And there is a reason why there's such a huge difference. It's not just because of prevalence of dentists. There are some public health prevention measures that have been put in place. But at the same time, I just want to kind of step back and say, all these things should be reassessed. Question, not that I have any doubts, but I'm okay with people questioning it, but then questioning it with data and, and it should be reassessed to see if there's any negative effects over time. Absolutely, I agree with you. Let's move on. But isn't the whole idea about it supposed to like stop tooth decay? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think that why our widespread tooth decay is due to a lack of fluoride. I think it's more due to the fact that our diets become aberrant. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, I haven't used uh, fluoride toothpaste in some time. And I, when I was a kid, I was the kind of kid that every time I would, every time I would go to a dentist, there would be a new cavity. I just like would always dread going to the dentist because like there would always be something for them to fill. Yeah. And ever since I demoted grains and, and grain products, you know, to the occasional indulgence in my diet, right. I haven't had like a single ca- cavity. That's the anecdote certainly, but. But I think it's, it's not like a mystery why these kinds of things develop, why we, why we have tooth decay. It's just yeah. that we just eat crap. You know, we eat crap all the time. I'm sure you saw that chart that was recently published where they rated the be- nutritional benefits of food. I shared it. The food compass. And please tell people about this. Oh my God. So great. Is it on your Instagram? Yeah. It's at the top. I pinned it at the top of my Instagram. It's That's so better. crazy. Yeah. Tufts University. and. I recently had a conversation with the principal investigator 
I believe that our conversations had out of good faith and he was interested in hearing my perspective. Yeah. So I shared this watermelon. Good. Kale. Good. Uh, I agree with that. Watermelon's great, right? Watermelon is tasty. I don't know about kale being on the thing. <laughs> Why is kale and watermelon together? Because watermelon has all that sugar in it and also seeds. If you eat the seeds, that's not good, right? This was a, a, an attempt by researchers at Tufts University to create a food, uh, a nutrient profiling system. This is right. the first, right? There's actually a profiling system that was devised in Latin America called the NOLA profiling system, which I actually am a fan of. It ranks foods in accordance with how processed they are, which I think is like actually quite important, can be quite useful in the context of, this, of the standard American diet with an obese population. But this is uh, the Tufts attempt. And we can clearly see that it underweights protein and it doesn't properly penalize foods for being ultra processed. Let's uh, read it out because there's people that are just listening. So Tufts, uh, they made this chart with three different color systems, green to be encouraged, yellow to be moderated, and red to be minimized. So frosted mini weeds, which is sugar on top of grain, is at 87. And it is in the green to be encouraged. Whereas ground beef is the lowest yeah. at 26, which is to be minimized. But ground beef is just protein and fat. Yeah. It's really generally healthy for you. Yeah, 100%. But what studies can they point to that say ground beef is to be minimized? I look at a boiled egg. Like that's just egg. Just an egg. Right. And, and what comes in higher, right? You see egg substitute fried and vegetable oil comes in higher than just a boiled egg. It's so crazy. Back egg substitute <clears throat> fried in vegetable oil is 62. I think it's important for us to understand what that diagram was. Um, that diagram is essentially somebody's take on the limitations of the food compass. Um, but the food compass itself... Almost like a caricature. Correct. Yes. They essentially said, how is it possible for these foods to be encouraged or discouraged? So that was not the food compass. Uh, now, the food compass was created by a team of scientists that were led by Dr. Dariush Mozafarian, who is an authority in nutrition. And it was essentially a profiling system. Uh, and they used multiple different domains to characterize foods. And the reason it was done was to discriminate the healthfulness of different foods, mm -hmm. because usually when people look at the labels in the back of a box or in the front, they're not able to essentially understand whether it's safe for them to take it or not. So this food compass or scoring system was uh, created and foods were given a score of one to 100. Right. So one was the least healthy and 100 was most healthy. And they scored about 54 attributes across nine health relevant domains. And these were nutrient ratios. I'm just reading it from the paper. Nutrient ratios, vitamins, minerals, food ingredients, additives, processing, specific lipids, fiber and protein and phytochemicals. So that's how they came up with the scoring mm -hmm. system. Now, if there are certain foods that are processed that are placed in the category of healthfulness, it's probably because they looked at all of these domains and perhaps there was something that made them helpful. So yeah. I don't think it was based on a subjective measure. These were objective measures and they were done by very smart scientists. But again, I think it's good to understand it very well and read the paper and we'll put the notes in the show notes for people to understand. But these were 
created using a very specific mechanism and guidelines of what healthy and unhealthy is. And Joe's uh, concern about ground beef getting a low score has been shown multiple times in many studies. We've talked about Alzheimer's. I mean, the reason Max is here is because he's talking about Alzheimer's and dementia. And one of the groundbreaking studies, yes, it's epidemiological, and I'll get to that because that's looked down upon in, in some circles, uh, was the Paul Guillaume study in Loma Linda University where we were in 1993, which showed that uh, those that ate meat, chicken meat, the red meat, and, and even fish, had twice the risk of Alzheimer's compared to those that didn't. By the way, this is at a time where the diagnosis of, di of Alzheimer's was lower, so there would be a bias away from that relationship, meaning that it would have underscored that relationship. Yet still, there was twice as high. And then there are so many other studies that have shown cholesterol from meat products and lipids from meat products or saturated fat strongly correlated with Alzheimer's. I think there's going to be more conversation about um, saturated fats and its association with health in science. If there is one solid association that is I don't think I, I would even fear of addressing it as a causative relationship is the relationship between um, high cholesterol or saturated fat consumption and cardiovascular disease. And the same is for Alzheimer's disease as well. There is so much data showing that when people eat saturated fats on a regular basis, their risk of Alzheimer's disease specifically the amyloid-related plaques and tangles kind of dementia, as well as vascular dementia and stroke increases significantly. We have studies that are coming to us from different populations of cohorts, whether it's observational epidemiological, whether it's from clinical trials, whether it's mechanistic studies. We know it, there's you know, years and years of data that show that people who have high saturated fat content, and if their LDL as a result goes high, if they have high LDL, that essentially is a very strong driver of Alzheimer's dementia. So the fact that the conversation is around why meat is at the bottom, it's a healthy thing. I mean, obviously it makes sense when you look at observational data, consumption of meat has been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And I just want to keep it relevant to dementia and cognitive impairment here. Same, Columbia University's Mediterranean dietary pattern, Rush University's mind and Mediterranean dietary pattern, the DASH diet shows that Adventist health study, the Adventist health study, California teacher study. We're going to leave alone the cardiovascular outcomes and the cancer outcomes. That's a <clears throat> huge conversation and, up there. But just over and over yeah. and over again, we have seen that people who eat more saturated fat, people who consume more red meat, whether it's unprocessed or processed, they have a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And what bothers me is that, and these are good people, but uh, they talk about bias. The fact that we are spending a huge amount of time speaking about one-off papers about sauna and fluoride and BPA and, uh, and, and uh, artificial, artificial sweeteners and where the data is actually not even clear, if at all, and yet mountains of data, epidemiological and otherwise, that shows the relationship between saturated fat. Yes, there's nuance now, the short chain and the longer chain, and that's fine. That's part of science. We always say it to the best of our knowledge today, the nuance is coming. But still, the relationship is extremely strong between saturated fat, 
high cholesterol as a secondary consequence. Even that's a nuance that the two are not perfectly correlated, but they're very strongly correlated. And dementia and stroke and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's, that powerful mountain of data is overlooked or mitigated because it doesn't confirm biases. And it's a strong bias. It's a bias that's not a bias of only taste. It's a bias of culture. It's a bias of past protection. I call it the, the, one of the strongest biases. It's a limbic amygdala bias, which grounds you in preserving what you are comfortable with. That bias is being completely overlooked despite all the evidence. Now, we go as far as to say, yes, could you have a healthier diet than the standard American diet by even eating some meat, uh, cleaner meat and so on? Yes. But we can't say it's the optimal diet. Agree. And the data doesn't say that. Absolutely. I I wanted to actually go over some of the papers that have shown this relationship between higher amounts of saturated fats and Alzheimer's dementia, the Chicago Health and Aging Project. I mean, this was a paper that was published in 2003 by Dr. Martha Morris. It was a longitudinal study. 2,500 older adults were followed and they were found that over a period of six years, and it was found that higher amounts of saturated fats and trans fatty acids, by the way, was uh, associated with a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who ate fats derived from plants poly and monounsaturated fats. Another study was from the Kaiser Permanente Northern California study. 9,900 patients, those who had high cholesterol during their midlife, and this was LDL cholesterol, they had a 57% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease later on. And even borderline high cholesterol increased the risk of Alzheimer's by 23%. The Women's Health Study from Harvard University 6,000 women followed for four years. They found that those who consumed higher amounts of saturated fats had a faster decline in their memory by 70%. And women with the lowest saturated fat intake had the brain function of women six years younger. So their brain actually looked better and functioned better. And obviously from the studies of mind and Mediterranean diet that was done at Columbia University and Russia University and replicated in so many other populations and cohorts as well, when you look at the mind diet, it essentially promotes a plant-based diet along with some fish and some chicken and perhaps some low-fat dairy products, but it definitely... It's a dominant, pre- plant-predominant diet. It de-emphasizes the consumption of red meat, processed meats, and sources of saturated fats, such as high-fat dairy products. So over and over again, we see essentially the repetition of the same concept or the same theme and variations of it. Let's continue. Not only that, you ever look at those folks? <laughs> That's another part of the problem. The people that are recommending health choices, they all look like shit. Yeah. Like that woman, Barbara Ferrer, the woman who was locking down Los Angeles. Oh my God. That poor lady. Yeah. Like, go outside. I don't know what you're eating, but eat something different. Like, that lady looks terrible. And to have someone like the Belgian Minister of Health, have you ever seen that lady? No, there's another. Oh, buckle yeah. up. Yeah. Buckle up for this one. I don't know what the fuck Belgian's up to, but this is like, it's a joke. It's like a punchline to a joke. Oh my God. Like, this is absolutely the last person you should be taking any health advice from. Oh God. Imagine. Yeah, well, the Belgian health minister. She's morbidly obese. Yeah. It's like a punchline to a joke. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean, That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. A vegan diet is unhealthy and dangerous for infants. Well, well I agree. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's right. She's like a broken clock. Yeah. Right yeah. today. A broken, yeah. <laughs> okay. Vegan diet is dangerous for babies. He makes fun of all her other claims, yet that claim he agrees with. There's no consistency. First of all, there's no data that a vegan diet is unhealthy for kids. 
there's in fact data that the standard American diet, the standard Western diet is actually unhealthy for kids. We talked about studies that showed that kids that were unhealthy, lots of saturated fat in their diet, they had white matter disease in their brain. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, I mean, you know, a vegan diet can be unhealthy yeah. for children. It definitely can be unhealthy if for babies. If it's not planned. If it's not planned, if the parents don't take care of vitamin B12 and B-complex and omega-3 fatty acids and definitely inclusion of good fats in a baby's diet because that's the period of their growth. And, you know, we've had great conversations with a lot of pediatricians, you know, people who actually are working with plant-based moms to have a great pregnancy and raise healthy children. And they do very, very well. Like we said earlier, it has to be planned. So Nobody is saying that you should just be giving celery and carrots and potatoes to your kids without ever thinking about the micronutrients and other macronutrients in their diet. Everybody has to take care of that. But to just kind of vilify an entire dietary pattern and say it's bad for babies. Without any data. Without any data. I don't think that's right. Let's move on. I'm happy that you said that, though. Yeah. That that's a big issue. Yeah, that is a big issue. There was a, a, a woman recently that was uh, jailed. Because her child died from malnutrition because uh, she was feeding it a, a vegan diet. Mm. I mean, I don't know what the fuck she was giving her baby. So this is extremely disturbing. To make a statement like that where a child died from vegan diet, that's an anecdote that's not been clearly defined as far as why and what this person was feeding this, uh, this child. And we have plenty of data, millions of people that are feeding their kids vegan diet. We raised our kids on a vegan diet. Vegan. They did very well. We're not uh, just showing off, but they're both in college. They're teenagers. At a, yeah, at age really 13, well. they, got, they got into college. They're, I guess we are showing off a we're, little No, because we have to give evidence. When you have, these are not exceptions. A planned vegan diet is going to do very well for kids. Absolutely. But, I, but again, I do think that absolute elimination of fat for children is not beneficial. Oh, it's dangerous. I, I, I definitely think so. But to bring this one case... Without that, actually going into the detail of what really happened, um, I think it's just harmful. Yeah, and, and what about all the other kids that die from malnutrition or poor diet, dietary choices of their parents? It was bad choices. So it is a little disturbing to make that kind of a statement that generalizes and indirectly actually impugns an entire food group. Here's the next topic. No, it's terrible. It's, uh, I just actually became, uh, became an uncle. My, my, uh, little brother, uh, had the, we have the first baby in the family, a little girl. And, um, I'm learning about like, you know, breast breastfeeding and all the things. Right. But, uh, what's interesting is that their pediatrician told us that like, he, he'll often see vegan moms come in and they, they're suffering from crazy, like osteoporosis and like low bone mineral density because like the mammary tissue doesn't care. What the like the mammary tissue just wants to make the best milk possible. It doesn't care if the woman, if the if the mother is getting it from her diet. If not, it'll take the nutrients from the, from the mom. Right, right. So it'll take it from the bones and the muscle of the mother. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the brain. Ooh. right. For the DHA fat, if need be. Oh, and so man, that's what they call mommy brain. That yeah. lack of sleep. Oh man, yeah, it's fascinating. All right, so this whole conversation about how vegan moms have osteoporosis, all of them, a sweeping comment, that's not true. 
We know that vegan moms actually do very well. Vegans in general. I mean, there was a paper by from the UK Biobank showing that bone health was a problem or, or an issue among vegans, but that has been debunked. People who eat regular amounts of protein and they eat calcium from different kinds of food products, again, when they eat a plant-based diet, they tend to do very well. Of course, there are going to be some cases where People don't really pay attention to their dietary patterns, the foods that they're eating. They're not exercising. They're suffering from frailty. Of course, they will have poor bone health, but so does everybody else. So I don't think that you can blame veganism for having uh, unhealthy bones. I agree. Okay, here's the next segment. It's so complex and so difficult to get out of because all these people that are proponents of regenerative farming Whenever I ask them if it's scalable, they always do this, like, yeah, like, well, fucking it's never been done. Like, yeah. when you're talking about being able to provide grass-fed beef for 330 million people, show me. Right. Show me how you can provide organic produce to 330 million people. Show me. No, it's not, po- it's not possible. Right. And that's, that's true. You know, like, grass finishing and feeding and finishing beef on open pastures. I mean, that takes a ton of land. Yeah. First of all, not everybody's going to choose to eat the way that I, Max Lugavier recommends right. eating, right? Like people have their own preferences, their cultural yeah. mores and things like that, right? That's where I think it's another, another area where they're like the vegan, the argument for veganism like falls short is that if you're partaking in modern society, if you're shopping in a modern supermarket, there's blood on your hands. So it was interesting that uh, there was a leap when the conversation became difficult, all of a sudden it went to, oh, nobody has, nobody's there without blood in their hand. But Joe raised a good point. If your recommendation is grass-fed meat, I mean, that we keep hearing this over and over and over and over again. Yeah, we talk about glyphosate and, and, and whether it's bad or not. Yeah, I, we think it's bad, but, but relative to the data for everything else that's bad, it, we don't have that much data. We also think that chemical alteration of our soil and all of that is is not good. But reality is you're going to have to feed a 7 billion population uh, planet lots of food. And if grass-fed beef is not the way to do it, and even Joe agrees that the way that we do factory farming, it's completely inhumane and completely unhealthy, then what's the point of your recommendations? Are we going through a pseudo-academic intellectual exercise where we lift up something and lower another thing, ignoring a whole ocean of data? That doesn't even make sense. Then why are we here? And as soon as we brought up the fact that grass-fed meat for 330 million people in the United States and 7 billion people throughout the world is implausible, we jump to the fact that, oh, but yeah, but uh, there's blood in everybody's hand. Well, there's more coming up, so let's continue listening. Animals and people are being exploited, right? It's doing a number on the environment. And the, I mean, if you really want to be like, live the most sustainable and quote unquote regenerative lifestyle, I mean, you're going to be growing your own. Yes. And that really is probably the only option. Yeah. Growing your own produce and doing it in the way where you're making your own compost and you're harvesting your own eggs. Yeah. You were doing. Yeah. That's probably the best way. But, you know, obviously if you live in a city, that's a giant problem. Yeah. And if you don't have the financial resources or the land, that's a giant problem. Because if you want to grow a significant amount of fruits and vegetables, you need, you're going to need some land. Yeah. But also like sickness is 
massively environmentally taxing, right? It's a massive resource sink. And the nutrition and the calories and, you know, what you get from beef is, you know, you get a lot more in a much smaller package, right? Like one cow can feed a family. And I'm not like an environmental expert or an expert in agriculture, but I know that one cow can feed a family for months. Yeah. Right. Two months, something like that. Easily. If you're looking to reduce the area under the curve for suffering, for environmental damage, it makes a lot more sense to me that you would you know, lean into animal agriculture. Also animal agriculture in regards to grass fed, grass finished beef, you're talking about an animal that has free range because that's the only way they can consume that much grass. They have to be in these open pastures. They, they get to roam around, they're not contained in pens. So there's so many problems in that sense. Right. It's almost like the, they say one thing and then they negate it and then they come back to it. Right. It's a not, roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. At, at, there's more nutrient in a certain amount of beef than, than anything else. Where is that data? We just said that most people that you're talking about, as far as researchers, they say that that's not the case. In fact, it was rated as one of the lowest health foods. But let's say that we don't accept that, but at least you can't go jump all of a sudden to the other end of the spectrum saying it's one of the healthiest foods. Where did you come up with that? And pound for pound, it's, it's going to be the most beneficial for society. Where did you come up with that? Again, a huge extrapolation. And then from that, you forgot two minutes earlier, you said that it's not sustainable to create a cow for every family throughout the United States or throughout the world. Where is that sustainable? So I think we're jumping all over the place just to confirm our bias. The contortion, the gymnastics is tiring, but it's good for your health. I guess this uh, the psychological gymnastics. And now it's getting really sloppy. Right. Yes. This is actually a very interesting part. So let's continue <clears throat> listening. They move around and the one that use regenerative agriculture, the benefit to that is they use the manure and the manure helps grow more plants and it helps, they use it as fertilizer. It also helps the, the richness of the soil and keeps the, the soil maintaining. Yeah. Which is so important because topsoil in this country is like really fucked, especially in these monocrop agriculture environments. They're pouring nitrogen on the soil and all sorts of other industrial fertilizers. They're trying to use just in order to allow, allow these plants to have the nutrients to grow. Oh my God. But they've determined that this topsoil in these uh, farmlands has been minerally deficient for a long time. Well, that's why our produce is becoming less nutritious. Yeah. Time. Our produce is actually developing its own form of plant obesity. You can imagine that. So there's a, a few potential reasons for this, but it's, it's, been referred to as the ionome, the, 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 the sum total nutritional value of our plants has declined over the past 50 years by about 8% on average. Some nutrients, you know, we see greater nutrient loss, others we see less, but in general, whether it's increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? Which is like a plant's food, right? It's causing plants to develop more starch, less protein, which is going to have a, a net effect on the population that eats those plants, right? More starch, less protein. That's fascinating. So it's the increased level of carbon in the atmosphere is damaging the plants. Carbon dioxide is what a plant consumes and they, they produce oxygen with that. Well, it's like it's your ratio. Yeah. You're increasing the availability of what plants consume. Plant obesity. Because there's more carbon dioxide in the air and that was related somehow to 
plants versus animal agriculture? Well, I have we, no idea. No, no, that part wasn't discussed of why there is more carbon. But even let's just, let's just, like in a crazy world, assume that that's true, that plants are obese because of carbon dioxide in the air, that they have more starch and less protein. Why do we have more carbon dioxide in the air? Yeah, we know the contribution of animal agriculture to the environment through methane and through the alteration of an environment and through global warming and, and all of these things. That, yeah, I'm not going to get into argument of percentages, whether it's 18%, whether it's more than that or less than that, but we know the contribution. Why wasn't that talked about? Yet at the same time, we talk about CO2 being higher, which is good for plants, and that creates plant obesity, which means that there's less nutrient. Yeah. How does we get that? Protein? Yeah. There's less protein in plants and more starches. Yes. I might even buy the fact that maybe the nutrient quality is going down. But these kind of connections, this is, again, those leaps from one. This is actually a very common uh, logical fallacy. I mean, jumping. Uh, and then they also did a, a straw man where they created a, a, an example that was not the example to be defended, but they created a boogeyman there to defend uh, when it kind of came to the environmental situation and animal versus agriculture. It's a leap. From all this chaos of sense of urgency, things are bad, plants are getting obese, there's CO2 and all that, to related to uh, ground uh, grass-fed beef because it will change agriculture. Those connections are not at all in proximity, but yet here we are listening to this. The genius life, but generally, yeah. And the, so it's the, it's the confluence of factors, right? It's like what we're doing to the soil. It's the fact that there's more carbon in the atmosphere. So the pl our plants are actually becoming less nutritious in terms of their micronutrients, but also the macronutrients are being depleted as well, right? We're diluting protein in the plants. And when that happens, when you dilute protein, I mean, you're going to have an effect on, I mean, we don't, we don't, we haven't yet been able to quantify it, but, um, but when you dilute protein, right? In an organism, you're, you're reducing the amount of amino acids, you're increasing the amount of energy that you're giving that animal that potentially could be a recipe for obesity. Yeah, the, the, or a the, factor. the argument that always drives me nuts um, when people talk about um, like uh, what is and what is not sustainable. This is what people always want to discuss. Like when you discuss like you should eat grass-fed beef, you should eat. Well, that's not sustainable. But I think your argument is best in that most people are not going to listen anyway. Yeah. They're just not. But if you're listening and you're a person who's really taking this information in and you're really trying to make steps to have an overall better metabolic health and overall just to, to, you want your body to function better. You can't think about sustaining the entire world. <laughs> like sounds fucked, but we're on a sinking ship kids. Okay. And you're alive. So you have choices to make right now with your life. And if you're listening to this, like, this is the argument that people always said to me, like when I talk about how I hunt and I, I'm one of the reasons why I hunt is because it's healthier me. And because, uh, I just want. I want a more ethical relationship to food. And they're like, well, everybody can't hunt. Well, guess what? They're not gonna, you know, most people are not going to hike miles and miles to the mountains and not cardiovascular fit enough to do it. They don't have the training to do it. They, they, they don't have the motivation to do it. They, they wouldn't be able to, in, they wouldn't be able to execute in the, in the actual moment of choice. You know, the, the, the difficult moment of truth when you have to pull the trigger or release an arrow, they got to fuck it up. Yeah. So they're not going to survive. So that's not what we're saying, but we're saying for the people that do want to take these steps and are motivated to change their life for the better, there are options available that are better for your overall metabolic health, they're better for your mind, they're better for 
literally better for the environment, for everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it would be immoral for a physician, right, sitting across from a sick person to have their guidance be informed by anything other than what's going to be best for that person, right? If you're a physician and you're considering what's going to be best for the planet, right? Now you could say, well, Max, he's an asshole. He doesn't care about the planet. I absolutely do care about the planet. I absolutely do care about animal welfare. But when, if you're sitting across the table from somebody who's sick or you're broadcasting a message to, to a sick population, right? You have a responsibility to that population, right? right? To that person. And so for me, my number one priority is to personally eat and to recommend to people what in my estimation is going to be the best to avert these kinds of conditions, right? The problem here is we're creating a premise as if it's an accepted premise that eating grass-fed beef and eating meat and eating liver and all these things are are beef, liver, and and eggs and all this is healthy. First of all, that was never proven. That case was never made. And the data doesn't prove that. And the data for a plant-centered, plant-forward, plant-predominant diet is profoundly uh, available um, and both epidemiological and otherwise. Yeah, a plant predominant diet that de-emphasizes red meat. Let's just make sure because you could probably just eat meat with a lot of plants, but no, a plant predominant diet that de-emphasizes red meat. And you never actually talked about fish either. No, not at all. It's remarkable. There's no question of that in any circle in the evidence-based world. That's true. And then from that, we all of a sudden, we jump to the fact that, oh, it's not sustainable, but I'm a good person. I care about animals and I care about the planet. But in reality, we can't change the world. Doctors should say the right thing that he thinks and not data-driven to a few people to follow. And the recommendation is therefore not global. A recommendation is just for the few people that will actually follow it. What kind of process is that? Where the data is never validated. The data to the alternative is actually dominant. And then on top of that, we're actually making a recommendation for a few people that can live a certain kind of life. That's not public health. That's self-confirmation. Everything about that, every aspect of that is self-confirmation. The weight that you're placing on value of mouthwash versus the mountain of data of saturated fat and cholesterol and the disparity is evidence for self-confirmation and creating a community of young people that believe in what you believe in and not in truth. Well, it could be older people too. So. It could be older people too. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's move on. I'll never know what, what was causal with regard to what she had developed, but you know, she was a basically vegetarian. She never ate red meat. My mom was actually very much uh, attuned to messaging surrounding heart disease. She was always afraid of developing heart disease. And so she ate a very low saturated fat diet. She also cared about animals. So she never ate red meat. She never ate eggs. She ate whatever grain product she saw in the market, in the supermarket that had the red heart healthy logo on it, that, you know, that would end up in this, in the shopping cart. We always had the corn oil by the stove again with the red heart healthy logo Mm -hmm. on it. Always had that. Never any butter in my fridge, always margarine. That's the kind of food that I grew up consuming because my mom was very much attuned to like what the orthodoxy said about heart disease at the time. And she didn't have the internet, of course, to, you know, to for exposure to like right. dissenting opinions on that. But yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, my, my hypothesis and not to, not to like blame her in any sense, but I do think that like, had she had integrated some of these more nutrient dense foods, more minimally processed foods into her diet, that it would have protected her to some degree. 
First of all, all respects to her, to uh, yeah, Max's absolutely. mother, a lovely person. I know that he wasn't blaming her and this was not a exploitation at all. I'm, uh, he is a good person. But uh, bringing that kind of case as a generalized case is not the right thing to do. We have had two grandparents each. We talk about it indirectly. We talk about diet being bad. That's okay. I mean, but the data on diet where we live in Loma Linda, we were the co-directors of Brain Health Institute in Loma Linda. And we actually were in the uh, free clinic in San Bernardino as well. So as far as geography, same geography. Correct. It's just like a mile from each other. From each other. And in Loma Linda, I saw 3,000 patients over five years, dementia patients. And in this population, the Seventh-day Adventists, majority of them would come to my clinic if they had a problem because there's a greater knowledge of health in the uh, Seventh-day Adventist population. They know about their own clinics more. So if there was a bias, it would be biased towards coming to the clinic and the nearest other clinic would be much further. So they would come to me. And at the same time, I collected data on their diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and everything else. And out of 3,000 in a population in Loma Linda where about a third of them are vegetarians or vegans, you would expect one third or more because there would be a selection towards coming of the dementia patients would be vegetarians or vegans. Law of distribution. So one third of the 3,000 patients. Which would be 1,000. Yeah. But out of the 1,000, out of 3,000 potential, 1,000 would be vegetarians, vegans by just the distribution. In fact, in reality, it would be more because the vegetarians, vegans, which are more uh, the Seventh-day Adventists would have a greater tendency to come to the Loma Linda clinic. Yet out of the 3,000, only 19 were vegetarian. 19. Again, it's a cross-sectional. I'm putting it out there that it's anecdotal. We never published this. And look how powerful data it is. But it is anecdotal. It's cross-sectional. It's, it's a large anecdote. It's a 3,000. It's cross-sectional. But that's how massive the differential was. Yet at the same time in San Bernardino, where we go to the clinics, where people eat all kinds of food. Again, junk food, I agree. It's, it's uh, sugar, processed sugar, uh, carbs, and lots of meats, fast foods, burgers, burgers, fries, fried food, lots of saturated fat. Everybody has high cholesterol. We see 40-year-olds with strokes, with vascular dementia, with vascular and cognitive impairment. I, I know this is a anecdotal, but these are huge anecdotes with populations that are right next to each other. And that in itself is incredible value. Beyond that, when you look at the Adventist Health Study, 96,000 people, 96,000 over 50 years, and Paul Diem looked at a subset of that, looked at meat consumption and even chicken and fish, twice as much risk in that population as opposed to vegans and vegetarians. We looked at the subcohort, 500 people cross-sectionally and divided them into vegans, vegetarians, pescatarians, and omnivores. And looked at cognitive tests, a very robust cognitive test. And guess how it fell? Just that way. The vegans did better than uh, vegetarians, then who did better than pescatarians, and did better than omnivores. And the data goes on and on and on. It's not a one-off. It's large data. And then when you look at prospective relationship between diet and stroke and, and vascular dementia and Alzheimer's risk, you see the same thing. And you quoted a bunch of studies that looks at the relationship between cholesterol, which is not found in most plants, and dementia, it is overwhelming. There actually isn't any data that shows that red meat is beneficial for the brain. I looked into it and, you know, even looking at different meta-analyses, yes, there was one meta-analysis that showed that red meat consumption was not associated, was not associated with any harm. But to say that 
red meat is actually a very healthy food, especially for the brain, we don't have any objective evidence of that. So we are into this talk for two hours and 11 minutes so far, and there's no data, no data-driven argument. And papers about uh, sauna are coming, and yet all this other data, including ApoE4's relationship with fat. I was actually waiting None of for him coming. to have a conversation about the MIND diet, Dr. Martha Morris's work. So still waiting for it, still waiting for him to actually refer to the finger study, the Finnish geriatric study, still waiting to hear about the benefit of fish and seafood for brain health, but I haven't heard anything else. I also wanted to add another aspect to this conversation. As far as early onset dementia is concerned, we don't have very good evidence to show that lifestyle has a very close association with the development of early onset dementia. You know, unless somebody's had a major stroke or some traumatic brain injury that could increase that pool of risk factors for someone, we can't really assume that certain eating uh, habits or dietary patterns can push people to have early onset dementia. And he early said that, you know, his mother had Lewy body dementia type of, you know, cognitive impairment. And he himself said that they really don't know about that disease very well as far as its prevention, as far as its development is concerned. So to kind of blame her dietary pattern for the development of her dementia is also not accurate. It's not accurate. That uh, doesn't take the bigger picture of the different kind of diseases. For example, in frontotemporal lobe dementia, it's much more driven by genetics. Agree. Yeah. Lewy body dementia starts much earlier than people actually know. In fact, some of the earliest signs are changes in GI and microbiome. So it's not related to things that people think. So that really bothered me again. Yeah. In any case, let's move on. It seems like all those things were negatives, like all the things she's doing, the margarine, the grains, the, you yeah. know, other than junky fast food. Yes. My mom wasn't a big fast food consumer. Um, and it, you know, this is a, uh, like, all I have is like retrospective, like looking back and kind of trying to ascertain, you know, how she lived, you know, while I was exposed to it. It's not that I, you know, she had it, like she was following any particular diet or anything like that, but but yeah, she was a big animal, animal rights advocate, lots of grain products, um, not a ton of protein. Like occasionally she would eat like lean skinless chicken breast, you know, or a piece of fish, but, but was always like very, very concerned about like cholesterol and things like that. So I do think that like, that's a dietary, that's, that is like the standard American diet. You know, that is to me how not to eat if you want to protect your brain over time, based on like all the research that I've done since then. And it sucks because so many people think it's the way to eat to be healthy. Yeah. And it's, the, it's such an uphill battle to try to convince those people and or to try to have a conversation with them. When someone says, what about cholesterol? You're not worried about your cholesterol? I just always like, this is such a long conversation to have with a person that has this orthodox opinion that's been kind of drilled in their head by the food pyramid and by all the scare tactics that people have heard about. We, well, Joe, if you ever want, we're available to talk to you. We're not biased. We just showed you that the same kind of bias that you would have because you're a mediator all your life as the same kind of bias that we would have because we're vegans, but we're actually more open because we changed from a primary position. And we even talk about things like fish and even the fact that even people who eat a certain amount of meat can be healthy. But when it comes to cholesterol, anytime you want to discuss this with us, we're available to talk to you about this. There's plenty of data at this point with the best of our knowledge, 
yes, there's more nuance to it now. There's more information as far as the, the kind of, uh, you know, short chain versus long chain um, fatty acids. But reality is cholesterol is very strongly related to cardiovascular disease. Cholesterol is very strongly related to vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. That's not a questionable thing. The reason that you might be having difficulty with, with this um, conversation with people is maybe the conversation is not done well, but we're open to talk to you. And if you're open to change, we're open to change, but let's have the day, the conversation in a very civil and data-driven way. So let's continue listening. How uh, saturated fat was the, the whole uh, more fraud by the sugar companies and that these sugar companies literally bribed scientists to lie about what was causing heart disease. And they started blaming it on saturated fat and tried to try to take the blame off of sugar. Absolutely. Yeah. There was that, um, you're referring to the 1967 JAMA paper, right? That yeah. was seemingly nail in the coffin on the issue as to whether or not it was sugar or saturated fat that drove the epidemic of heart disease that we were seeing in the you know, mid-century. And the Sugar Research Foundation paid each of those scientists $48,000, equivalent of today's money, to basically say that it wasn't sugar, that was the problem, it was saturated fat. That one paper was not the foundation of where we are today. Absolutely. Unless we're a conspiracy theorists thinking that thousands of scientists around the world are still falsifying, are being paid, and I'm 100% sure you don't believe that, then that doesn't even make sense. Bringing one paper as an argument doesn't make sense. All the studies, perspective that looked at the vascular relationship of vascular thickening with cholesterol, and, and even in award studies where people actually were put on a certain kind of diet and they saw the cholesterol and they saw the plaque development, all of that is pointing to this, not just one Paper. Basic studies, from ward studies, from clinical trials to observational epidemiological studies, we have so much data that shows that there is a very close correlation between high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. And we know that that actually translates to poor brain health as well and Alzheimer's risk. And there's no question that sugar is bad. There's no question that uh, refined carbohydrates are bad. So yeah, it's not one or the other. They're both bad. Processed foods that have high sugar. I agree with you with the orange juice and apple juice. As when people push that as a health food, it's not a health food. Mm -hmm. You're just separating all the beneficial parts and just giving people sugar. And then, of course, all the sugar that's being added to our food. It's not just sugar. It's the sugar, salt, and fat. All three of those, we're being bombarded with all three because our body craves those survival foods. Survival and evolution is not in our benefit long-term. So evolution only cared for us to live to 30, past the age of reproduction, and then we actually would want us to die. The rest of us here, you, including Max and Joe and all of us, who are past 30, a little bit past 30. We're trying to live to 80, 90, and beyond. Let's not bring paleo science and evolutionary science. We're trying to break that pattern. We're trying to hack it. And that means that all the things that are being pushed at us, salt in excessive amounts, sugar in excessive amounts, and fat, saturated fat, and definitely trans fats, and I know you agree with that, but they're all bad for us. Let's continue. Money, these, these personalities, right? These like the, the, the obstinate territorialism. Yeah. Um, and Ansel Keys, who really is like thought to be the father of the diet heart hypothesis, was like this very, you see this all the time, like 
this very overbearing personality, right? That's the way that they, the same way that they described in the science article, Sylvain Leslie, the guy who, who renewed uh, vigor for the amyloid hypothesis. It's like, you know, they have these, like, they have like this celebrity and, and charisma. First of all, any, having any charisma as a scientist, you're going to go places, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because so many of them have like, zero. Have zero. <laughs> right. So what is this throwing dirt at Ansel Keys and the charisma and what is this all about? At, at hominem. And by the way, you have charisma and you're not even a scientist. How far has charisma gotten you? And you deserve it. You're a brilliant, well-spoken scientist. For not, God's sake. He's actually... No, I'll give him science. No, no. He himself says he's not a scientist. Okay. He's a reporter. A, a reporter, journalist. But two hours and 14 minutes, no data at hominem. And now we're getting to Ansel Keys being a certain overbear. Newton was an asshole. Does that mean that he was wrong about the calculus? He went into a room for a month yeah, and made a calculus. Look at their work and stop, leave their personalities alone. Just yeah. Look at their work and assess their work and just leave the ad hominem. It doesn't look good on you to actually start throwing dirt at people that you don't agree with. Maybe this is what's happening. The audience likes this because this is not... So far, there's been no science jumping from mouthwash to DPA to sauna to APOE4 and then nothing about APOE4. And now, not that I'm a big fan of Ansel Keys. I don't even know. By the way, I, I know about him. But if people want to learn about Ansel Keys, Alan Flanagan and Simon Hill have a great conversation. Uh, amazing. About yeah. That I highly recommend. And I will make sure that I put the link to that conversation in the link. It is absolutely beautiful. A person being an asshole does not take away from their science. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and a person being nice doesn't give credence to their science. What does the science say? Let's move on. So it's a, it's a big problem. And saturated fat, I think, is like, you know, the, the plant-based community and, and still, the, you know, much of the medical orthodoxy are myopically focused on LDL cholesterol. Specifically now, I think it's, it's pivoting a little bit to ApoB, so all ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But, you know, when you take out red meat from your diet, for example, yeah, your ApoB or your LDL cholesterol might be a little bit lower, right? But you're not, that's not a risk-free swap, right? You're removing from your diet a rich source of highly bioavailable micronutrients like vitamin B12, like zinc, like creatine, which supports brain energy metabolism, like carnosine, which helps to support healthy, you know, blood sugar regulation in the body. And of course, protein, right? Like an amazing pristine source of highly um, bioavailable, highly digestible protein. So like to be myopically focused on these single marker indicators of, you know, related to cardiovascular risk, I think doesn't make any sense. Well, I think he's also myopically uh, focusing on the single components like vitamin B12 and some other micronutrients and meat and completely negating the other components that are associated with being a carcinogen, associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, associated with increased risk of mortality, associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease as well. So we could say the same thing about you. If you look at what motivations are the drivers of a conversation, you look at the weight of a conversation and the weight seems to keep coming back to red meat. It's protection of red meat. It's the past protection thing that that I'm talking about, the amygdala driving this large population to protect the past, protect the thing that they value. And it's protecting red meat and without any data again. Right. And I know that I sound like a repetitive uh, person here, but we have 
plenty of strong evidence that shows that red meat consumption has been associated with increased risk of all of these diseases, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, and cancer as well. I agree that science needs to be have a wider perspective, but I can assure you that there are enough smart people out there that look at the data and say, okay, we're wrong here, but repeatedly still across the board, whether it's American Heart Association and so on, of course, somebody's going to say they're paid by X, Y, and Z. It's impossible to look at the data and not see the relationship between cholesterol and saturated fat and heart disease and plaque buildup and things of that nature. So it's not a myopic thing. It's the overwhelming nature of data. Yes, it will become more nuanced, but the data is there. And then all of a sudden jumping to meat as a protector, no data there. Here's the next topic. No, it doesn't make any sense, but people don't know that information. And when they hear about LDL cholesterol or HDL cholesterol, they don't know what's good and what's bad and why is one bad and why is one good. And that's a misnomer, isn't it? That like one is good cholesterol and one is bad cholesterol? Yeah. So neither are good or bad. HDL has long been considered the good cholesterol because when it's elevated, it's associated with better health, right? Why is that? Well, it's probably reflective of good health. It's, it's not necessarily causal because they've actually engineered drugs to raise HDL and it does nothing um, in terms of uh, reducing cardiovascular disease risk. So usually what I think the, the current thinking is that HDL is more reflective of good health. So if it's, if it's high, you know, it shows that you're doing something right. So you want it to be high. LDL is a little more complicated. It can, it's responsive to, you know, there are many different things that it's responsive to, but primarily certain types of saturated fatty acids. So when you hear on social media, for example, that saturated fat is bad, that's pseudoscience because a fat isn't a fat. Same way that protein isn't protein, carbs aren't necessarily carbs. You know, like they're all like underneath those umbrella terms, um, there are different types that determine how we respond biologically to them. So when it comes to saturated fat, I mean, you've got different kinds of saturated fatty acids. One type of saturated fatty acid that's actually elevated in grass-fed, grass-finished beef is stearic acid. Steer, named for cows, actually has a neutral effect, doesn't, doesn't increase uh, levels of LDL cholesterol, and actually might improve functioning of the mitochondria. So we can't just say that saturated fat is bad. Also in dairy, dairy is one of these things where when you look observationally, people who consume full fat dairy, not even low fat or reduced fat dairy, have better cardiovascular health, better metabolic health. And dairy proportionally has more saturated fat than any other fat source, right? Because as I mentioned, all natural fat-containing foods have some proportion of saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat. If you look at beef fat, tallow, it's about 50% monounsaturated fat, some small proportion of polyunsaturated fat, and then some, you know, minor, again, minority proportion of saturated fat. But dairy is actually mostly saturated fat. So you'd think that if saturated fat was this like dietary boogeyman, right, that Consumer, regular consumers of dairy, people consume a lot of dairy fat would have the worst cardiovascular health. And that's not what we see. We see the exact opposite. Okay, so all of the details about the different components of saturated fats is irrelevant because when you look at the totality of evidence, it supports a causative link between um, the consumption of high saturated fats and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So the general recommendation is to reduce the consumption of saturated fats and to keep it less than 10% of your total dietary uh, you know, constituents. 
and increased mono and polyunsaturated fats that are found in extra virgin olive oil or other oils or nuts and seeds and things of that nature. So that's the data. I don't think we really need to go into so much detail to look at the different components. Yes, we need more information. We need better elucidation of the data. And we're so excited to learn more about it. But so far, we know that saturated fat intake, regardless of what type it is, increases LDL, which increases cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. Moving on. So I think that full-fat dairy is, is, uh, is really quite beneficial. But when you look at a, a dairy product like butter, interestingly, when you feed a person, if you were to feed a person both uh, heavy cream followed by butter, you'd see that butter actually leads to an adverse effect on blood lipids, whereas heavy cream does. And butter is just made from heavy cream, right? It's like churned cream. Mm-hmm. But the churning disrupts this membrane, this lipoprotein called milk fat globule membrane. And I think that's why butter can have this like negative effect on blood lipids. So actually when I, when I discovered this, when I realized this, it, uh, caused me to actually demote butter to be more of like a YOLO food, more of like an indulgence food. Interesting. Um, yeah. So explain this adverse effect and like, how is it measured? Yeah. So butter and heavy cream are both the same foundational ingredient, right? And actually, if you were to put heavy cream in coffee, the cream would easily like, would uh, just disperse around the coffee, right? Butter sits at the top, mm-hmm. right? And so you can clearly see that chemically something has changed after it gets churned and becomes the food product that we know and love and call butter. So the milk fat globule membrane, which is present in full fat heavy cream and other dairy products, it's thought to that that actually is like quite beneficial from the standpoint of brain health, um, but also affects how we metabolize the fats in dairy. So in clinical trials, what they've shown is that you can feed somebody this controlled for fat calories, right? You can feed somebody dairy cream and it won't have any effect on their LDL cholesterol, right? If you feed somebody butter, it will, it will see an elevation of LDL cholesterol. You know, I don't believe that we should do everything we can to get our LDL as low as possible. Because again, like foods that are generally very beneficial and healthful, like, you know, grass-fed red meat and things like that, eggs, the benefits outweigh the risk. But with butter, I think potentially you're causing an elevation of your LDL cholesterol and ultimately your ApoB for no real reason. Butter is not a very nutrient-dense food. You know, you get a little bit of vitamin A in it, retinol, which is, you know, not bad. But yeah, so butter can have this negative effect. So did he just say that high LDL is a bad thing? He's playing around the edge. So I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but we want to keep it low. I don't know what low, how low. So he's playing with this LDL concept without pointing to the data that shows that low LDL is associated with lower risk of stroke, lower risk of dementia and all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden we go to this unusual, this is actually a, a, a bias that's created where you throw an unusual concept and that always gets the attention. So cream is beneficial for you. Where is the data? There are one-off for papers brain. for brain health. Right, so. Yeah, let's say that there is a one-off paper that shows a relationship with lack of influence on LDL. First of all, it's a one-off paper. Second of all, in research, we say that it has to be reproduced by another group and it has to show the final effect. Nothing like that exists. And we introduce out of all the possibilities of good and bad that we already know, we throw in red herring like 
cream. Mm -hmm. As far as dairy products are concerned, I think there's not much information as far as its effect on brain health is concerned. But we do know that high-fat dairy products could increase LDL and could contribute to cardiovascular disease. But we don't see that effect for low-fat dairy products. So, you know, fat-free yogurt, fat-free milk, if people want to consume that, that doesn't increase cardiovascular disease, to the best of our knowledge today. It might taste like crap, but the data is the data. Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Well, I'm eating it if I'm eating it because we haven't eaten in a long time, but... We're going to keep the subjectivity out of it. Correct. Let's move on. So for me, dairy is great. So butter is one of these dairy products that especially if you're prone to hypercholesterolemia, if you're prone to elevated levels of like LDL, ABOB, um, it might serve you to, to reduce your consumption of fat. Is there any benefit to, or have there, have there been a study comparing grass-fed butter to uh, butter from cows that eat grains? Because it looks very different. Yeah. Grass-fed butter is a rich, much more yellow butter. Yeah. Whereas like milk or grain-fed butter is like it's almost white yeah because probably because there's a higher proportion of carotenoids um in the butter i think the butter can be great like there's again like vitamin a there's these carotenoids there's cla there's butyrate there's all these like interesting vitamin k2 and butter which are you know which are significant and they're and you know that's great but if you are for example if you have hyper if you have familial hypercholesterolemia which many people do or if you know it's just, it's just one of these foods that like, I would not consume as liberally as say I'm consuming like the heavy cream or, or full fat Greek yogurt or even fat free Greek yogurt, which is a great, like high protein food. But yeah, always, I mean, you're always going to get higher nutrient density when a cow eats its biologically appropriate diet. And it's really just the fat. Like for example, the difference between grass finished and grain finished, you get about five times the omega threes in grass finished beef in general is not a great omega three source. So just to put that out there. Um, you're getting, in absolute terms, a much smaller amount of omega-3 fatty acids that you would get from a piece of salmon, for example. But still, five times the omega-3s as compared to uh, grain finished. You're getting three times the vitamin E, which we know is super important to help protect the fats that are already in your body. We need vitamin E. Vitamin E is crucially important. You get much less, fewer fat calories overall. And of the saturated fat, you're getting a higher proportion of stearic acid, which we know is actually quite beneficial. So I do think that it's probably, uh, healthier to consume, you know, but that none of those, um, features are really gonna matter if the meat is super lean, right? Like, cause we're talking primarily about like it's fat. So it's remarkable that we're talking about so many other possible healthy foods. Yeah. They talked about greens and, but yet so many other healthy foods for the brain and, and even on the meat side, fish, the one food, the one meat that's been shown to be beneficial, smaller fish, the salmon and mackerel and all those, beneficial for the brain, they never talk about it. The majority of the conversation, a major part of it, not majority, but a major component is about grass-fed beef, which tells you the bias, right. the fact that do we want the conversation to be about what's beneficial for the brain? Or what do we want to confirm about grass-fed beef? Let's say even that was true, that grass-fed beef was helpful for you. Wouldn't you want to speak about some of the other factors that are shown to be beneficial, like fish? Mm -hmm. Right. I can't really say that we don't eat fish for what, what, what we're doing as far as mass destruction of the oceans for fish and all that. But the science says fish is beneficial. 
Yet after two and a half hours of conversation, the one of the meats that's been shown to be beneficial that has some data, we never brought it up. And we keep circling back to grass-fed beef, grass-fed beef. And we said that it's not sustainable, yet we are just talking to the people that can actually have access to grass, which actually what, what it does is, because we know that a majority of people don't have grass-fed beef, but it opens up the conversation to beef, which opens up people resting back to their natural state of eating, which is meat. Yeah, uh, this I'll is just uncomfortable. I, right. So let's continue listening. Anything else you think needs to be discussed? I love educating people and helping people so clearly separate that yeah, facts and fiction. It's, I think it's my life's purpose. You know, like I really feel like aligned with what I'm, with what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm super excited for, uh, the documentary. All right. So let's talk about some fact versus fiction. Um, we started this conversation by making sure that people were aware that we were going to stick to the data, even if it didn't really agree with our choices as uh, vegans. Being neurologists and scientists in this field, we know the importance of nutrition. It is very important. We're very aware of what we know. We're even hyper aware of the things that we don't know. There are a lot of things that we don't know about nutrition. And after our conversations with incredible scientists and based on our work in the communities and in the university, looking at the relationship between lifestyle factors and brain health, there's still a lot of things that we don't know. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should throw up our hands and just kind of quit. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of great information as far as diet is concerned that can help us live a long, healthy, brain-healthy life for a long, long time. So just to summarize, here is what we know. As far as diet is concerned, there's really no evidence on particular types of foods. We're shying away from looking at individual foods or vitamins. We're looking more into dietary pattern. And even if you include some of the things that are not considered healthy in the context of a healthy dietary pattern, you're going to be okay. The dietary patterns that have been studied over and over again for brain health, specifically when it comes to prevention of Alzheimer's disease, is the Mediterranean diet, the MIND diet, and the DASH diet. The MIND diet is uh, a mix of the Mediterranean and the DASH diet. And like I said earlier, it essentially promotes vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, fish, some chicken, and sources of poly and monounsaturated fats, nuts and seeds, extra virgin olive oil, et cetera. And the things that de it de-emphasizes is red meat, processed meat, and sources of saturated fats. I think if we just stick to that for now, we have enough evidence. And the most comprehensive study showed that when people consume or adhere to a MIND diet, not entirely, but those who actually had the highest adherence reduced their risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53%, and even moderate adherence reduced the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 35%. And that's great news because it's not an all or none phenomenon. Every small incremental change towards that kind of a dietary pattern matters and it actually protects our brain health. Beautifully stated. Right. Beyond that, I think to say this is good, this is bad, we really don't have any evidence for that. Now, as plant-based neurologists, Dean and I started a conversation by saying we're vegans and that was a very personal decision. We went vegan because we didn't want to contribute to factory farming. It broke our hearts to see how animals felt, but that has nothing to do with what we profess, what we talk about. We do say that it is 
very possible to eat a whole food plant-based diet, a planned plant-based diet that people don't necessarily have to eat fish, that they can get omega-3 fatty acids from plants, that you don't have to eat animal products. You just have to be very, very protein aware, very aware of the micronutrients in your diet, and you can lead a very healthy in life. Fact, quite a healthy life. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the same time, it is possible to eat some fish and some meat, and but yet most of your food has to be plant-centered, plant-forward, and be very healthy. Yeah. So it's critical that we don't create these false nuances, stating certain facts being more beneficial and less beneficial to create so much chaos that people settle back to their baseline standard Western diet, which is unhealthy. We do know, as Aisha said, we do know what is healthy, which is a plant-predominant diet. And I know that we focus a whole lot on food, but food is just one part of Alzheimer's prevention. There is exercise. There is cognitive resilience and reserve, which is really undermined. Understated. Yeah, it's incredibly important. We know for a fact that a major part of why uh, we see a population, let's say women that are coming to us from in their 80s, from that, uh, from that population or other populations that have less education or have been less cognitively challenged, they have much higher risk of dementia. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. All of that should be taken into consideration. I know you're very passionate about cognitive reserve. Yes. And, you know, us living together, raising two children, you always talking about not being cognitive misers, that you have to be an active thinker, that you have to always be involved with something that stimulates the mind. And we've actually seen, even we have objective evidence from large population studies that when people, even if they had moderate or kind of, you know, just like, not excellent, not pristine cardiovascular health, but, you know, just the mediocre cardiovascular health. If they had cognitive resilience and reserve that was built over decades of just being involved in cognitive activities, they were protected. Correct. So, I mean... But a combination is by far the most effective. Of course. So, so making sure that we eat a healthy diet, but at the same time, making sure that we're physically and cognitively active, making sure that we address psychological health, especially during yes. childhood, during midlife, stress, anxiety, depression, mental health issues, all of that contributes to chronic inflammation, damage to the brain cells, and not having that opportunity to create brain cell connections and resilience throughout our life. Absolutely. All of this is really, really important. And I know that I'm really passionate about food. You are as well. But there's more to the story. Correct. I hope this was helpful. Thank you so much for hanging out with us for such a long time. This was quite the marathon. Yes. I hope that we get a chance to talk to Joe directly about this and kind of give him the broader picture. I'm not going to hold my breath anytime soon. No. The whole time I was thinking, what I was thinking, I was looking at him and he was wearing the Wu-Tang Clan t-shirt. That's right. <laughs> and Riza from Wu-Tang Clan is vegan. Eight out of 10 people from the Wu-Tang Clan are vegan too. Correct. So that just kind of made me... And, and one thing that uh, we've <laughs> asked Max, again, we have nothing against him. He's a very good person who's... Uh, and we, we know that what he went through with his mother. But we've asked him, let's talk about this. Let's debate. And he's multiple times, he's actually said that debates are useless. Debates are the only thing we have. Conversations, exchange of thoughts, finding a higher truth. It doesn't mean that we have to be right. Where can we find the truth where a greater majority population can become 10% healthier? Where can we find a common denominator of conversation where we can make the population 20% healthier? 
that's what's important. And that's only going to come from meaningful conversations around evidence. All of the papers that we talked about, all of the podcast episodes that I mentioned during the conversation will be in the show notes. And we would love for you guys to share this episode with your loved ones to make sure that we disperse the right kind of information about brain health and prevention of Alzheimer's disease. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Much love.